Hey, Jay, what's that you're reading? Uh, some kind of note, I think, Miles. I found it gemmed under the door of the studio. Think it's from a listener? That seems unlikely under the circumstances. I mean, it's one thing to slide a note under the door of an actual studio, but whoever sent this one managed to slide a physical note under the non-existent door of the fictional conceit that we use to metaphorically represent remote collaboration. Whoa. Yeah. So what's it say? I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. Well, that's ominous. I am here tonight, that's hyphenated by the way, to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. Not getting less ominous. God, this seems really familiar, but I'm having a hell of a time placing it. Is there any more? Uh, yeah, let's see. You will be visited by three spirits. Three spirits. Oh, oh, I got it. This is, this is a Christmas carol. Like what, the lyrics for one? No, like Dickens' Christmas carol. Specifically, I'm pretty sure this is all stuff Marley's ghost tells Scrooge. So someone broke the laws of reality to send us some Dickens quotes. Who does that? I mean, according to Dickens, ghosts, but I got nothing. I started down a list of... What was that? Wait, you heard it too? I thought it was something over here. Hey, has there always been a door there? Tall, dark wood... Really creepy engravings. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, yeah, no, it's new to me too. You think we should answer it? What if it's ghosts? I don't know, I guess you could quote Dickens at them. Seem to like Dickens. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? Is that a Christmas carol? Wait, you're not a ghost, you're Vita Ayala. You were expecting a ghost? Uh, never mind. Come on in, make yourself at home. Our imaginary studio is your imaginary studio. Dope! I brought Teeny Howard and Leah Williams. Is, uh, is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Hey! Ho, ho, ho! Merry X-Men! Sorry for dropping in out of nowhere like this. Anytime. The great thing about having a studio that's entirely metaphorical is that we never actually run out of room. Or chairs. That's good to hear. I was kind of wondering how we were all going to fit once the other guys got in. The others? Uh, did you bring someone else? Oh, she just means the ghosts who were behind us on the walk-in. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 319 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the sixth annual Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men giant-sized winter special! While we're at it, welcome to 2021, since this is going to be going up just after the new year. It is indeed. We're recording it on one side of that transition. You'll be listening to it on the other. Uh, but first, Jay, did you ever find out what those ghosts wanted? Oh, yeah, they just needed directions. Fair enough. 
Well, 2020 has been a hell of a year. We certainly hope 2021 will be better. We'll see how all that goes. At least it will be different. But congratulations to all of us on making it this far. Yay you and yay us. With the qualifier that survival is awesome and worth being excited about and proud of, but should not imply lack of virtue or dedication or whatever on the parts of anyone who didn't. That as well. We're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff, as is our want during our giant-sized winter specials. We have some comics to talk about, we have some writers to talk to, we have some awards to give out, and I am super excited to be here. Jay, I'm super excited to be doing this with you as well. Yeah, I... I, I got to admit, like, there, there's a feeling of simultaneous, like, massive stress because this is huge to plan, but also just intense, palpable relief. Because, like you said, this means that we got through what's been mo one of the most challenging years of life in general, but also just logistically for the podcast. <laughs> for serious. And I feel like, I don't want to jinx it, but I feel like as far as this episode goes, we're going to be ending strong. I'm so psyched for everything we're going to be covering this time around. Way to ensure our recordings get corrupted. Oh, well, uh, hopefully not that. So with that, we have some comics to tell you about, gentle listeners. Jay, shall we dive in? Let's do this. So we had a little bit of trouble deciding on this year's comic. And one of the reasons is that apparently both of us massively misremembered this series. We did, yeah, because I was thinking, okay, we're in like 95, 96, we've already covered a bunch of miniseries of this era, because there were so many. What sticks out as special? And I was having such a hard time thinking of something. And eventually we had it narrowed down to a couple of titles, one of which was The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Now, I had remembered disliking this, and I'd remembered disliking it for very specific reasons, which when I reread it, I realized I was remembering from a completely different comic, which was a really pleasant surprise. Now I'm wondering what that comic was. Like, is this a picture of Dorian Gray thing where the more we like Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, the more terrible this other misremembered comic becomes? The thing is, I don't even know how to narrow it down because there's so much shitty anachronistic Victoriana out there. That's really true. I feel like there's got to be some expert on shitty anachronistic Victoriana out there. So, um, listeners, if one of you is that, then maybe you and Jay can figure it out. I feel like it's going to turn out to be Jess Nevins. The person, not the comic. Yeah, no, Jess Nevins is wonderful. Good, good, because otherwise those would be mean things to say about a person. No, but he, he knows all of, all of the period-based genre fiction, just all of it. Nice. I guess yeah. we could throw in that Jack the Ripper nonsense. Was that Victorian? I can never remember which eras are which. Yes. Yeah, Jack the Ripper was Victorian. Oh, okay. Now, Jack the Ripper was late Victorian. This is mid-Victorian. And I looked up the dates very carefully because it occurred to me while I was reading through this the second time to take notes that I would have really, really loved to see Nathaniel Essex and Lord Byron as frenemies um, because the combined concentration of just distilled drama in that relationship would be, I mean, it would be weapons grade. I love this plan. And that's one of the things I love about this series, too. So if you haven't heard of this series, Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, in fact, there is no the at the beginning, as awkward as that sounds, this is the origin of Mr. Sinister. This is where he went from being Nathaniel Essex to Mr. Sinister. And I appreciate that the one through line, okay, the two through lines between those two entities are an interest in genetics, and an even stronger interest in drama. I mean, the goatee stays consistent, too. I don't know. He's been clean-shaven occasionally. 
I don't like the look, though. Something else I absolutely love about this series that I sort of remembered but did not remember quite how deftly and pervasively it was the case is that it is a time travel story in the X-Universe that is a closed loop. This story doesn't create branching time. It's, it, it's characters going back into the past. It does not create branching timelines. It just sets things up accidentally for the future that already exists. And again, it's, it's a closed loop system and it's brilliantly executed. Well, speaking of timelines, maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the characters and concepts we're going to be dealing with here, because this series does begin with some assumed knowledge in the readers. Okay, well, the first thing that I think it's important to know is that every comic set in the Victorian era is either about Jack the Ripper, a retelling of A Christmas Carol, or both. And this one clearly isn't about Jack the Ripper. Wolverine and Gambit victims already sort of covered that. Right. So we are approaching this with the understanding that it is no doubt a retelling of A Christmas Carol, and we've, which is another reason we chose it for this episode, because we, we felt like it would be a really good thematic fit. Exactly. I mean, we're recording this before Christmas. It'll come out after, so we split the difference, and therefore, Mr. Sinister is the main character of A Christmas Carol. Oh man, speaking of Victoriana again, I just realized it does actually kind of make sense that Mr. Sinister comes after Lord Byron because Lord Byron is actually the origin point of gothic, a lot of gothic horror tropes and specifically gothic vampires. Okay, and Mr. Sinister is not literally a gothic vampire, but pretty much. He clearly styles himself somewhat after them. Now I'm just imagining him hanging out with the main characters of the What We Do in the Shadows TV show and it's kind of delightful. But yeah, no, no, Lord Byron is amazing um, in that he was such an absolute fuckboy that an entire genre of horror monsters uh, is based on him. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that, I'll buy that. But what leads all of these characters into A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? What's the deal with Scott and Jean and time travel? Because they've done that before. Right, Scott and Jean, as we know, cannot take a proper vacation. And... This time, they're not even trying to take a proper vacation, but they have they have a long-ranging relationship with a group of time travelers. This is the Ascani Sisterhood. Part of that is that the head and founder of the Ascani Sisterhood is slash was Rachel Summers, the daughter of Scott Summers, Cyclops, and Jean Grey, Phoenix, from an alternate timeline. Part of it is also that the Ascani Sisterhood was built around and to protect their likewise time-displaced via the Ascani Sisterhood, because again, time travel creates loops. Son, Cable. Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, who's technically the kid of, of Scott and Madeline Pryor, who's a clone of Jean, but who has basically been raised by Scott and Jean. The point is, Cyclops and Jean have been through the time stream to deal with Ascani bullshit before. The Ascani exist not just to protect Cable, but specifically to protect Cable so he can fight Apocalypse. Now, I assume most people have heard of Apocalypse, even if this is somehow your first episode, but if not, Jay, one sentence description of Apocalypse. Large, ancient, blue mutant whose lust for destruction and peak performance of a species can be matched only by his people management skills. Well said. And one of the people that Apocalypse has historically managed is the main character of this series, Mr. Sinister. We learn about how he became Mr. Sinister in this series, but in the present day, when we just knew him as a villain, we mainly knew that he was a geneticist, 
obsessed with the Summers and Grey bloodlines and stealing their DNA and trying to genetically engineer Cable. Yeah, he's about half the people in Cyclops' pre-X-Men backstory. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, not like Kang the Conqueror levels of being a whole bunch of people, but, you know, he's doing all right for himself. Well, he doesn't time travel. He just he's just very good at disguises and mind control. No, I'm just imagining him with the uh, glasses, with the nose and the mustache, just putting those on, taking them off repeatedly and Cyclops being completely fooled every time. I mean, when you've got fairly substantial mind control powers, I, I assume you can just pull that shit off for fun. Probably. Now, this isn't the only telling of Mr. Sinister's origin. The X-Men animated series from the 90s had an episode called Descent, which was basically the same concept, because the X-Men cartoon adapted goddamn everything, and I am still in awe of that fact. Maybe I'm thinking of the episodes of the cartoon. Maybe. I would believe that those would be pretty anachronistic. I, I haven't seen them in years, but anyway... Let's talk a little bit more about Sinister and what his deal is, because I think that might be important going in. I, I feel like we should have the same frame of reference, at least as Scott and Jean coming into this. Sinister is one of the really big X-Men villains. In fact, I would say that if, if Cyclops specifically has a signature villain, it's Sinister. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Sinister created Madeline Pryor, the clone of Jean Grey. He engineered Cyclops and Madeline hooking up in hopes of them having the offspring that Sinister had always wanted to come into existence. And uh, Sinister has done some pretty awful stuff in general. I mean, as an X-Men villain, he was behind the attack on the Morlocks that killed almost all of them. And behind a good deal of Inferno, although indirectly. He's... A scientist at core. He is someone who is fascinated with mutation and with the genetic potential of humans, and utterly, utterly amoral in his study of those. Um, he's been around since the Victorian era, and one of the things that we know for sure by this point is that he, he did a whole, whole lot um, of experiments, you know, with the Nazis, and he was okay with that. So he's, he's utterly, utterly amoral, and his, his, relationship to Apocalypse is a little more complicated, and he's actually teamed up with the X-Men a few times because he's kind of also the quintessential villain who doesn't want Earth destroyed because it's where he keeps his stuff, although in his case it's more he doesn't want, you know, the entire mutant species destroyed because he studies their genetics. Exactly. And then clones them a whole, whole bunch. So much. So much cloning. So with that background discussed, let's dive right into Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number one, Digging Up the Past. This issue is written by Peter Milligan, penciled by John Paul Leon, inked by Klaus Janssen, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And boy, howdy, some of this creative team. I got to admit, when I was taking notes on this issue... I had to go back through large chunks of it four or five times because I was so distracted by Jensen's just gorgeous inks that I, would, I wouldn't really absorb anything else. On this podcast, I know we're often guilty of not talking enough about inkers. And speaking for myself, that's in part because I'm not enough of a, a comics scholar or a visual artist to often distinguish between pencils and inks as far as the parts of the art that I like or don't like. But in this case, Jansen's use of shading, his use of just large swaths of solid black, like a very different version of Mike Mignola, but the same basic idea, it adds so much, and it adds so much to just the tone of these comics. 
Oh, see, for me, it's all about his use. And, and the thing that really sticks out to me that really distinguishes him from the other artists that you're mentioning is his use of texture. How he uses texture and layers of texture and especially textile. And that's really hard to do well. And again, with this degree of intricacy, it's hard. Barry Windsor Smith does it in a very, very different way. Um, but this, yeah, I have, I don't, I can't think of anyone whose work is really comparable to what Jansen does with that in this series. Yeah. And you may have heard of Klaus Jansen before. He's done a lot of really prominent work for both Marvel and DC. I would say the big two that he's known for are The Dark Knight Returns with Frank Miller and Daredevil, also with Frank Miller. Yeah, he drew a ton of Miller's Daredevil run. Not not the most famous stories. Those were David Mazzucchelli. But Jansen did a lot of especially the earlier stuff. And such, such good work. But the rest of the creative team are no slouches either. Peter Milligan, I know him best from his run of Ecstatics, which is the X-Men spinoff that started off briefly being called X-Force before being renamed. That's the one about a sort of reality TV show cast of mutants with a very high mortality turnover rate. It's pitch black, great satire. And then we have John Paul Leon penciling, and we actually covered one of his stories before, not coincidentally, the flashback scene of that sinister story we talked about recently where Cable's shitty son Tyler tries to convince Sinister that he likes a girl and therefore he's not a good villain. And where Sinister is being a Hollywood Dracula in the 1920s. Exactly. And Kevin Summers, we've seen Kevin Summers' colors a whole bunch, but they're very suited for this series. Everything is sort of muted and a little bit dirty, which I think fits the story set in the past, specifically the Victorian era, really well. I am so grateful that gradients are, for the most part, left in the toolbox on this one. Yeah, this would be an inappropriate place for them. And then we have Richard Starkings doing letters being amazing, as always. There are a couple points where I take issue with some of the sound effect fonts, but otherwise, yeah. So with what glorious moodiness does this series begin? 1859. An isolated estate on the outskirts of London where knowledge is pursued at any cost. A dark destiny that will culminate 2,000 years hence begins with the plaintive cry of a mother. When her son died suddenly, aged four, they buried him here with his ancestors. But as they lowered his tiny coffin, she felt as though the future itself were being entombed in the rich, Kentish soil of Milbury House. And the art matches the narration beautifully. Everything is heavy black shadows with sickly greens and blues and purples. If you are coming into this expecting a superhero story, you will be disappointed because what this is is weird gothic horror. It's the tone is pitch perfect, the art fits it beautifully, and yeah, it's the entire team is just leaning fully in and committing to the genre, and it's a delight. Oh, yeah. As the first page zooms in on the action, we see Rebecca Essex, Nathaniel's wife, digging in the mud with her hair all wild in the storm around her, and she's pregnant, and you can just barely see her wild eyes behind that hair, and Apocalypse is looming in the shadows behind her, and it's just, it's terrifying and glorious. And why she's so frantic is that she's desperate to understand why her husband has done what she thinks he has done. That's right. 
It's the most wonderful time of the year. Grave robbing season? Exactly. So with that opening out of the way, we flash back to a month earlier and we meet Rebecca in happier times along with her husband, the scientist Nathaniel. And the contrast between them is immediately evident. She's delightedly digging in the garden and he's brooding about how this new guy Darwin would be great if it weren't for his stupid morals. I appreciate that from the beginning, Nathaniel is just a dick. Yeah, this is a guy who is wrestling with his morals not because he's questioning himself, but because he knows that they're impeding his ability to get everything done. Oh, it's great. Rebecca asks her husband about this bone she just dug up, wondering how old it is. And when he says, yeah, it's ancient, she doesn't believe it, because 200 years before, James Usher wrote The Annals of the Old Testament, where he deduced from the Bible that the world began in 4004 B.C., And Nathaniel's response to his wife's discussion of scripture and its interpretation is just so perfectly concise. The Bible is wrong. There is no God. Oh, Nathaniel, you sure know how to talk to your wife. Now, it's obvious from the start that he's going to be our Scrooge figure. He works long hours, he's obsessive, he's alienating the people who care about him. Exactly. So it's going to be up to three friendly ghosts to try to show him the true meaning of Christmas. And we'll get to all of that. Three varyingly friendly ghosts. Yeah, I guess that's true. There was that Grim Reaper looking dude at the end. Still, important goals. After he's done being a jerk to his wife, Nathaniel heads to the Royal Society to present his theories about evolution, building on the theories of his fellow member, Darwin. Essentially, what Nathaniel's describing is not just evolution, but from what I recall from middle school was called punctuated equilibrium, the idea that there are these periodic evolutionary jumps. Essex has a great explanation for this. He says, okay, there are these little parcels of genetic information that are going to manifest in a lot of people in about 100 years. Let's call them, I don't know, Essex factors. (laughs) Now, he also brings visual aid. And I love this because one of the things this series really establishes is that even as a human with no supernatural capabilities, Essex's flair for drama was just unmatched. I'm of two simultaneous, seemingly contradictory, but in fact compatible minds about this, because when he pulls a big sheet off of his giant Frankenstein's monster-looking motherfucker with big wings and animal parts grafted on, on the one hand... It's really scary and dramatic because you get the idea of just how far Essex has been willing to go past social propriety to showcase these theories that are so important to him. He's been digging up the dead of various species and stitching them together. On the other hand, think about the logistics around this. Like, it must have taken him forever to build this thing. And that's fine. Like, he could totally do that in his basement. He's got a very big house. But then he's got to get it here. Did he just have, like, a wheelie cart? Like, a little red rocket wagon that he pulled it in? Or if he had servants, did they pull that red rocket wagon? I don't know. Like, it's got wings on it, but I'm pretty sure they're not functional. I guess he could throw it really hard, and then it would glide on those wings. Okay, the thing that's most remarkable about this, though... Assuming, you know, difficult logistics, but you can get you can get large stuffed creatures into meetings of the Royal Academy. That's not a big deal. Um, Is that this is not one of his experiments. This is solely a visual aid. I know this is just like see figure one, this horrifying monstrosity that probably smells awful that I must have spent months constructing. Like, dude, you could have just brought a fucking blackboard. 
I, I know, like what, you're too good for flip charts? Uh, yes, he is too good for flip charts. He had to just stitch together this weird patchwork monstrosity to be like, and maybe they'll look like this. And you'd think this might be Chekhov's horrifying Frankenstein's monster and like it would come to life later or something. No, this is purely a single slide in Essex's poorly thought out PowerPoint presentation. It's totally in character, though. Like one of the things that you mentioned is that when you read the stuff, you have trouble seeing the ridiculous current sinister like this is these are those points where those roots are that's true yeah because in modern marvel and i'm sure we'll get to this at least a little bit when we talk to some extra creators soon mr sinister is a very silly character he's very glam and vampy and ridiculous and at this point he's not but yeah that obsession with drama like you give that the repeated cloning of the character and a couple hundred years, and I could see that happening. Well, current Sinister is a Sinister who is is the same person as we have here, but is more aware and doesn't take himself quite as seriously. Right. This Essex takes himself extremely seriously. And Darwin thinks maybe too seriously. And he tells Essex, okay, dude, I lost a son too. It's super hard. I'm sorry. But if you keep down this path, you're going to become a monster. Also, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? Essex is horrified and basically goes out making the inevitable supervillain scientist, you know, you'll you'll all pay, you'll all be sorry when my brilliance is proved, uh, storms out under a hail of books and papers and goes and gets himself sloppy drunk. And at this bar, he is met by another bar patron with a phenomenal name. That name is Cootie Tremble. But there's something else phenomenal I want to talk about. You know how I said I just wanted to talk about Jansen's inks? I am holding back real hard here, but I gotta talk about the beards. Let's talk about some beards. I am always in favor of that. Okay, Klaus Jansen, and, and you know, the later inkers on this series pick up this style pretty well, but no one does it quite as well as Jansen. Jansen inks facial hair in ways that accurately reflect and replicate its texture, and it is bonkers yeah i know like you very seldom see the little bits of stray hair and whorls that are going to be inherent to any beard and jansen just gets it oh yeah he's it's 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 genius like he does he does that with hair too like he gets those textures really 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 beautifully but it's particularly impressive with beards just because so few artists bother well, Cootie Tremble, with his much less impressive hair and facial hair, decides that, hey, he knows just the trick for getting somebody's mind off being kicked out of the Royal Society after building a horrifying Frankenstein's monster that could have just been sketched on a cocktail napkin. He's going to take Nathaniel Essex to see some really rad shit. In the sewer. In the sewer. Specifically, he's going to take him to see what at the time was called a freak show. And in this case, the freak show largely, largely seems to consist of a traumatized young boy who's so messed up by his experiences that he refuses to speak, and a scaly lady who, thanks to the very good framing of the art, we only ever see her clawed hand reaching out through the bars towards Sinister, which is actually very effective. Historical note, one of the things that Tremble mentions is that he he's doing a public service by keeping these people out of the public sight. And it was actually believed pretty widely at this point that seeing people with with visual uh, with visible disfigurements could cause things like spontaneous miscarriage and there were actually laws in a lot of places including in a lot of the united states 
basically banning those people from participating in public life. That's part of the reason that freak shows became such a thing, um, because it 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 was you know it, there were limited opportunities to do things like work and interact with other people for folks in those positions. It's really fucked up. It's got a really, this stuff has a really long, interesting and horrifying history that's very much worth going into. And I really like that small allusion to it. Um, one of the things I dig about this series is that there are a lot of like small groundings in historical detail and fact that imply a much larger, and in this case, real world. And they're not just there as cool little footnotes, like they all serve the story. So in this case, Essex thinks about these poor unfortunates as... The cast-offs of evolution's march toward the great mutation. And then he thinks of his own son, who died at four years old because he was deformed and his organs and body weren't developed the way they needed to be. It all ties together. This is some very efficient and clear storytelling. What's not so efficient is Cootie Trumbull's approach to robbery, because it as it turns out, this whole thing has been a trick to basically mug Sinister. This is the most elaborate mugging I've ever seen. Seriously, you just could have waited until he went to, like, take a piss in the alley, which I assumed you had to do in the Victorian era, and pushed him the hell over. He was soused. You didn't need to, like, kidnap a bunch of people with unfortunate conditions to bring someone to see before stealing his wallet. Well, I, th I think that we, we do have to have had that happen because... Essex, to some extent, recognizes Tremble as a kindred spirit, as someone whose appreciation for showmanship is far greater than his appreciation for efficiency. There is that. And so we learned that Cootie Tremble and his friends call themselves the Marauders, which you may recognize as the name of Mr. Sinister's henchman that perpetrated the mutant massacre. That does make me think, though, like, we have two options as far as Mr. Sinister's team of evil mutants— they could have been the Marauders, sure, but they could have also been the Nasty Boys. Which is a super Victorian name for a gang. It totally is. They could have been the Nasty Marauder Boys, or the Nasty Boy Marauders. The Nasty Boys would have been fine, and I think, I think we should just call them the Nasty Boys. Okay, that's reasonable. Because they are. Essex decides, okay, you could mug me, or, Nasty Boys, you could come work for me. You could do it for the sake of science. And money. And yeah, they're sold. As by virtue of the same bargain are the people they've kidnapped and enslaved who are now going to be Essex's research subjects. So Essex and his nasty boys head back to Milbury House just in time for Nathaniel to briefly patronize and then ignore his very lonely wife. But that's not the only thing that's been happening underground. That's right. If Essex thought that, that Tremble's small sideshow was a more remarkable thing in the sewers he got nothing on what's coming next because you know who's been hanging out underground in london a couple of sewer workers who stumble upon apocalypse or at least into a big high-tech fancy sarcophagus chamber from which a large blue man emerges and promptly zaps them both to death Apocalypse has been slumbering since ancient Egypt. As we know, Apocalypse is immortal, yes, but he has to periodically take a long break and regenerate, like, you know, Torpor in Vampire the Masquerade. 
This version of Apocalypse visually reflects that, and I like that. He looks way more Egyptian in terms of his design and in terms of his garb. Not just his outfit, but also his features look almost like something that could have been drawn on a pyramid wall, from what little I know of pyramid walls. I love Apocalypse's design in this series. I mentioned attention to detail and historical accuracy, and it's not just that Apocalypse looks Egyptian, it's not just that he's wearing Egyptian clothing, it's that he is dressed like an Egyptian aristocrat in Victorian London when he's in disguise as a human. Right, and all of his techie parts, because Apocalypse, of course, is always a little bit robotic-looking, they're not the 80s and 90s tech that we're familiar with. They look a little bit more steampunk, and that is a really rad-looking combination. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, there, there still are the cybernetic components, but they're couched in the materials of the time. And even in in his first moments awake, he is the apocalypse we know and love. Had they been strong, they would have attacked me in that first moment of consciousness. When, disoriented by long years of hibernation, I was my most vulnerable. But they were weak, and so were obliterated. As all must perish who stand in my way. For Apocalypse is risen! Part of Apocalypse's problem is that he can't really respect anyone who doesn't kill him. Right, and uh, since he's really, really hard to kill, well, he's just sort of an elitist fuck. Well, and even when he does get killed, he isn't around to appreciate it. I'm going to take a brief tangent here and talk about Zombies Run. So I've been running for a few years. I'm not an amazing runner, but I'm, I'm all right. It's something that I, I'm not going to say enjoy, but value. And I use the program Zombies Run to do so. It gives me a little story to kind of listen to periodically as I go that continues. And I'm caught up on the main story. And so I've been doing these side stories that the writers release, which are often sort of retellings of the main story, but done in different genres and time periods. Right now I'm going through a study in Icor, which is set in Victorian London, and in fact does involve sewer workers encountering horrible supernatural evil and things going bad and a bunch of stuff about class and science going in wrong directions. And this entire miniseries reminds me of it a great deal, but I'm much less exhausted and panting and wheezing while I read it. It's probably for the best. Probably. I, I can't tell whether whether a running program based on like Apocalypse or Mr. Sinister would be motivating or the opposite. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, Apocalypse believes that only the strong survive. So I guess you're getting stronger as you run and thus more likely to survive Apocalypse's various purges. Yeah, but you know he'd have no real patience for any kind of like learning curve or training curve. That's probably true. Yeah, I'll just stick with Zombies Run rather than Apocalypse commands you to run. (laughs) Apocalypse heads up to the surface world and marvels at how far technology and society have come, which gives him a great opportunity to flash back to his origin. And some of this stuff, this is the first time we've heard it. We learn about Apocalypse as Ensabanur growing up as a slave in ancient Egypt. That's going to be explored a few months later in the Rise of Apocalypse miniseries, which we covered in episode 110. It's a nice little bit, but it's not too relevant to the series, so let's not worry about it. Let's worry about who Apocalypse immediately meets up with. That is the Nasty Boys. Remember, these are folks who make their living finding oddities to display or now to kidnap and and bring to Essex. And boy, is Apocalypse an oddity. 
one of the nasty boys has a great take on that. He ain't human. Ain't even French. Everything goes very poorly because mugging Apocalypse is really hard, it turns out. And Apocalypse demands that they bow down, which they do. They have now started working for two separate major characters in this series in the space of one issue. They are so hench. I mean, they're freelancers. They are, yeah. And I guess Apocalypse is a highly effective manager. And you know Sinister's not giving them any kind of insurance. Oh, yeah, probably true. Benefits were awful in the Victorian era. I mean, Sinister is literally the guy who clones his employees so he doesn't have to provide workers' comp. I mean, it's not the most evil way of avoiding workers' comp that I've heard. Nothing I can say in response to that is going to be appropriate to air. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rebecca Essex, or as I call her, Rebessex, wakes up and despite her better judgment, goes to see just what the hell Nathaniel's been doing with his nasty boys in that lab all night. That sounds more sexual than it was. Well, yeah, so do the descriptions of, of soft screams. That's true. But speaking of descriptions, I am loving so much of the narration in this series, and this part especially. No, she should stop. Do not pull the sheet away. Stay ignorant. But it is too late. She sees it, and her blood turns to ice. I mean, it's not exactly the concerned Milliganian narrator, but boy, howdy, I love it. No, it's the gothic horror narrator. Like, this is, this is absolutely in voice in the, genre, in the genre. And fitting right in there with gothic horror, she digs up the coffin of her dead son after seeing a suspiciously familiar small child in that lab. The coffin is indeed empty. Now, she confronts Nathaniel with this, and he tries to explain that, no, no, he just, he wanted to study what was wrong so he could save future babies. But their argument is interrupted by a familiar-looking Egyptian nobleman. Um, that's right. The ghost of Christmas past is in the house. Indeed, he is! So this raises a question, because before Christmas past, before, before, you know, the three ghosts were most familiar with, Scrooge is visited by Marley's ghost. Okay, so Marley was a character already dead when A Christmas Carol started. And he's presenting basically a cautionary tale to Scrooge. Now, a lot of remember, you know, rememberings and retellings forget Marley, so that could be what's going on. But I, I did try to come up with some options. Um, I figured the, the Royal Academy might be one, you know, collectively, or Darwin specifically. Or I guess the dead baby could be Marley. Oh yeah, I guess Adam could be Marley, but yeah, you know, he's not really reaping the repercussions of a, a you know, life you know lived with bad values. I don't know. I mean, we know that the Essex's son had some medical issues and died early because of them, but he could have also been a real asshole. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, you know, four years old, like a lot of little kids can be jerks. I'm just saying. Yeah, but they're usually not as calculatedly evil. Well, right, but this kid was an Essex. Fair enough. And that brings us to issue two. This is unnatural selection. And if you're wondering where on earth Cyclops and Phoenix had have been, and thinking, you know, the title promised us Cyclops and Phoenix. Cyclops and Phoenix, we shall now have. Specifically, we shall have naked Cyclops and Phoenix. Um, Jean lands first and she lands in Westminster Abbey to the confusion and awe of the churchgoers and clergy. 
who of course immediately give her a blue blanket as a cloak, because as we learned from the original adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, the more you can have Jean Grey parallel the Madonna, the Virgin Mary, the better. Although again, as we brought up before, if you're going for original parallels with Cable specifically as the Christ figure, then Scott is actually Mary, which makes Madeline God. Anyway, it's complicated. It sure is. Scott himself doesn't fare as well, and he, also naked, falls in a sewer. Uh, without a visor, and he is immediately also attacked by, by proto-morlocks. Two things here. One, Cyclops wouldn't be Cyclops if he didn't narrate aloud about not having a visor and having to control his powers. And two, speaking of narration, let's check out what Milligan says about these proto-morlocks. They are merely the latest products of the great industrial revolution. Human pig iron blasted in a furnace of pain, fear, and suffering. So why are Cyclops and Jean traveling through time again? Okay, so this is the work of Sanctity, and Sanctity is the last of the Ascani Sisterhood. Sanctity is also Tanya Trask. Wait, what?! Yeah, so Tanya Trask is Bolivar's daughter, Larry's sibling, but she was a mutant, like her brother Larry. However, her powers manifested before her dad had time to give her a sweet disco medallion to prevent them from firing, and so she time-traveled into the far, far future and became an adept of the Ascani Sisterhood. She did try to go back in time at one point to prevent her dad from making mutant hunting sentinels, but then she accidentally made it so that they were created in the first place, so there's a time loop for you. Oh, that's very much in thematic keeping with this story, too. Now, in some ways, she's more powerful than Rachel was as Mother Ascani when she brought Scott and Jean into the future, because she could only bring their minds and their, 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 their spirits into sort of into you know, empty vessels, into cloned bodies. And Sanctity can actually physically transport them, although apparently not their clothes. I don't think that's a limitation of the time travel. I think that Sanctity is just kind of a dirty old lady. Damn it, Sanctity. Now, there's another limitation here. As, as you may recall, Scott and Jean, again in the far future, were, were there for years and years and only sh shunted back to the past when, when Rachel died. Sanctity has a time limit, and this might have to do with, you know, transporting them bodily into the past, they can only stay there for about 48 hours, and they've got 48 hours to in some way thwart Apocalypse or the future is doomed. Now, Sanctity doesn't give them a lot of details, doesn't give Jean a lot of details. Jean's the only one she talks to. But she does direct her towards Essex, whom she describes as... A man whose soul will be the battleground on which the fate of the future will be decided. Now... Right now, the corporeal representatives of that particular battle for the future are Rebecca, who wants Sinister to abjure his creepy shit, and Apocalypse, who's all about some unethical science. So, the ghost of Christmas present and past. Isn't the ghost of Christmas present typically a sort of more cheerful figure? Yeah, but this is further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Ain't nobody happy. Fair point, and Rebecca does have some pretty good, you know, reposts to to Sinister's comments, uh, including after he he won't commit to to stop doing his his horrible experiments. You hesitate too long, sir. Peter denied our savior thrice before the cock crowed. Do not expect such patience from me. Apocalypse doesn't even deign to comment on any of this. He's already decided where this is going, and he starts by inviting himself along 
to Essex's upcoming meeting with some potential sponsors, a possibly recognizable group of the rich and powerful. That's the Hellfire Club. And they fit this Victorian era so well. They're a bunch of rich, selfish jerks who are amused by presentations of quackery, which, uh, boy howdy, does Essex have one. They are not initially very impressed because Essex, while brilliant and driven, is not a good public speaker. Uh, let's think back to his previous PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> well, he, he did not bring bring his, his visual aid along this time. Or rather, his visual aid is basically Apocalypse, which initially doesn't seem that impressive. And then Apocalypse changes into his true monstrous, partially robotic form. And uh, yeah, there you go. Proof of all of Essex's theories about these evolutionary jump-started people. Well, kind of, sort of. Yeah, this is the first time Essex has seen Apocalypse's true form, and he is just as taken aback as the Hellfire Club, although for different reasons. What Apocalypse is, what Apocalypse claims to be and now proves himself to be, is, like you said, it's proof that Essex's theories were right, that they're worth pursuing, that he's on the right track. And Apocalypse also goes on to intimidate the Hellfire Club. God, in, in one of the best speeches in a series that is full of very good speeches. Look upon the face of destruction, worms! Witness the true form of Apocalypse! Because you meet in dark rooms, because you have money and influence, you consider yourselves strong. You are nothing but weak, complacent parasites! Once I knew a man who thought as you do, full of pride, he thought his so-called royal blood gave him power. But for more than a thousand years, he has been my slave. And unless you serve me, you will have a most intimate knowledge of death. Though it is my custom to remove the eyes of those unfortunate enough to bear witness to my power. But the look of fear in yours tells me it is unnecessary. You will await my instructions. Come, Essex. I believe this meeting is concluded. Damn! Yeah, I really appreciate that we have the two villains who like to talk the most in this series hanging out together. And just declaiming away. And they're doing it so well. Like, Milligan has both those voices really, really down. Milligan will later go on to write the Blood of Apocalypse arc in the early to mid-2000s. That's a lot weirder, but it's still a fun apocalypse in it. I'm going to go ahead and say that this series is more fun. And a lot of that, again, is the art. And we've got, we've got other inkers coming in. Mostly those, those inkers are um, Sean, Sean Martinborough, who, who's going to ink the rest of the series. This issue with Klaus Janssen and then others with, with other folks. And he's really, he's, he's got that same flair for texture that Janssen has. Maybe not to the same extent or with the same degree of intricacy, but it's there, and it's his 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 apocalypse has you know, this protean quality. Yeah, and I'm I, I know you know a lot of this is working on on Leon's pencils, but the inks are so much of what give the art its character in this series. Agreed. 
Meanwhile, Jean, having clad herself in her signature, when we're talking about religion type story, color, heads to Milbury House, asking after Essex, and has a brief and deeply awkward chat with Rebecca, who's now reburying the remains of her possibly asshole but definitely dead son. Yeah, like, there, there is no good etiquette for walking up on that situation. It is a good conversation, though. I mean, you have Rebecca just so bitter about the whole thing, and Jean doing her best to gently break through that with genuine compassion. She also makes a parallel that we're going to see a number of times in this series, talking about how her own husband, Cyclops, also lost a son. In Cyclops's case, because he had to give him up to a future hologram lady, or else the son would have been killed by a robovirus. And Jean talks about how, well, Scott, you know, was able to get past that and become a better person, and I just don't know that I buy this parallel. I mean, yes, Scott had to give his son up to time travel, but Sinister's son painfully died, and Scott also had a way better support group and was at least a little bit used to weird stuff happening. And far less in the way of initial supervillain tendencies. Like, I'm trying to think of who an equivalent character to Sinister might be to put through that situation, but I think a lot of the point is that, that you know, Sinister's immediate response to things going badly was to be like, well, gotta do the science, the morality's getting in the way. Exactly, yeah. Sinister isn't Cyclops under the wrong circumstances, Sinister is Beast under the wrong circumstances. Ooh, that's a good parallel. Yeah, like very specifically. I guess the further adventures of Beast and Beast didn't have the same ring to it. Speaking of Cyclops, though, he gets captured with a bunch of proto-Morlocks by Cootie Tremble's gang and manages to break them out, taking some nasty boys out along the way. And one of those nasty boys named Oscar isn't quite as nasty. I gotta say, this bit, and in general, Cyclops's you know, rallying speeches and, and inspiring prisoners to break out reminds me a lot of that one Paul Smith arc of X-Factor. Oh, yeah, the Evolutionary War one. Yeah, where when you drop Scott Summers into an unfamiliar environment, he will find the local revolution. <laughs> yup, and give it its fire. Well, okay, I mean, the, they're not lasers, they're not heat-based. He'll, he'll give the revolution its uh, force, I guess. Yeah, that works. The Proto-Morlocks and Scott decide to not murder Oscar the Less Nasty Boy, and Oscar takes them off to go find Jean Grey, because of course the Nasty Boys are aware of basically everything that's been going on recently. Well, and Scott is able to direct, direct him because he and Jean are in telepathic contact. That as well. And in fact, they do find her, and I love that as Oscar is about to fall out of the boat that they're in, suddenly Cyclops, who's had his eyes squeezed shut this whole time so he didn't, you know, force blast everybody, catches Oscar. Because they had just come within range of Jean's eyesight, and Scott was now seeing through Jean's eyes. This comic is so good at showing what a perfect team Scott and Jean are. Yeah, and also just how connected they are, because they're, they're apart for a lot of the series and a lot of the series is the two of them trying to get back to each other and get back to the same place. It's a very different dynamic from The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, in which they're pretty much always together. And just the extent to which they're, they're you know, navigating by each other and just the palpability of their relief when they finally actually end up back in the same place is really, really well sold here. 
It is. I also have to comment on their outfits. Like, they're wearing essentially stylish-looking rags, which mostly look really cool. Like, Jean especially has this great big, very textured coat and a big scarf and a long patchwork skirt. But under her coat, she just sort of has bandages randomly wrapped around her breasts, and it looks kind of cool, I guess, but why, why would you do that? Those rags probably aren't clean. Everything was filthy in the Victorian era. Yeah, that's weird, and it's one of those details that actually escaped me my first time through just because there are so many layers, and usually when she's drawn, her coat is being billowy and, like, pretty much closed over her. Yeah, so, uh, I don't know. It's not bad so much as, huh. Well, now that they're together, Scott and Jean do manage to find Essex, who Jean was looking for. They immediately recognize him as the man that will become sinister— and they also immediately recognize the dude with him, that being Apocalypse. So Scott and Jean, without even thinking, jump in and attack Apocalypse, but they are very, very easily beaten by him and his souped-up marauders. He has taken um, the Nasty Boys, and he has, he has improved them in the ways that Apocalypse improves people, although these guys specifically look far less like horsemen we're used to seeing than they look like the Reavers, or at least a Victorian version of them. Yeah, they're very cyborg, and the designs are pretty cool. We don't see a lot of them up close, but when we do, it's rad as hell. The fight goes poorly indeed. Gene is left unconscious in the Thames, and Apocalypse captures Scott and offers him to Essex for experimentation. Essex is torn because now he's encountered all of the ghosts. Scott and Gene are clearly the ghost of Christmas yet to come, collectively. But also kind of the ghosts of Christmas past. Because what he sees when he sees them, you know, reunited and relieved to see each other again, is a couple whose dynamic reminds him of him and Rebecca in better times when they were still in love. And he really has a crisis of conscience over this. Don't worry, kid, you'll get over that pretty soon. Now, that's not the only thing Apocalypse is offering Essex, nor is it without strings. Um, Apocalypse has, has another offer. And Essex getting, getting Scott is contingent on his, him accepting this one as well. You must allow me to release you from the stupid chains of weakness and morality that you still cling to. In return, I offer you the chance to follow your work to its end. To witness sights undreamed of, and usher in the new age you have foretold. Also, an inordinately fancy cape! So Sinister has heard from multiple ghosts, and now he's got until sunset to decide which ghost he's going to go to the prom with. That brings us to the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number 3, The Origin of a Species. This issue is written by Peter Milligan, penciled by John Paul Leon, inked by Sean Martinborough with Tommy Lee Edwards, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And we just go right back into it as Sinister pulls Gene out of the river, Scott having been carted off by Apocalypse. He assumes initially, having missed some of the fight, that she must have fallen off a boat, but then recognizes her as, as the woman he saw earlier. And Gene is really good at trying to appeal to people's better angels, and it doesn't take her long after being pulled out of the drink to try to convince Sinister to reconnect with the ghost of Christmas present with Rebecca, instead of, you know, committing horrific scientific sins. This kind of reminds me of early morality choices in video games, the ones that break down to save the kitten or eat the kitten. 
Yeah, but they're not even, it's not even that opposite things. Like he could do both. He could re reconnect with his wife and do evil science or do slightly less evil science, but still kind of evil science or like partially reconcile, reconcile with Rebecca. Like it doesn't have to be a big either or. And Jean keeps falling on the same argument she's been, which is that, hey, her husband had to go through some hard shit too, and he came out the other side a better person. The fact that people keep on making this comparison pretty much guarantees that Essex is going to end up low-key fucking obsessed with Scott Summers. Oops. Yup. Meanwhile, Robo Cootie Tremble uses the chain harpoon attached to his helmet. Total reaver total reaver, to capture a lurking Oscar, who I'm pretty sure is Tiny Tim at this point. I don't know. Is Oscar Tiny Tim? I thought Danny was Tiny Tim. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to Danny. You're right. Oscar is, I don't know, Bob Cratchit, probably. Oh, you're right. Oscar Oh, Oscar is definitely Bob Cratchit, because he's, he's the rebelling laborer. Ah, hey, there we go, then. And as Gene PK thunders Mechacooty to save Oscar, Essex wonders, okay, how does this whole thing I'm seeing factor into the Essex men who are supposed to replace humanity? Like, the Essex men are supposed to be the next generation. They're supposed to replace humanity and not give a shit about them. But here I see someone who's clearly an Essex man risking her life to save a normal baseline and, in fact, very shitty human. Why would these evolved entities care? Wait a minute. Are... Maybe both groups? Just human? Maybe they could live in harmony because they're all part of the same big family? Okay, this is how you showcase Xavier's dream in the X-Men's purpose. This is such good show-don't-tell as much as just drowning in dialogue. Milligan does it masterfully. I also adore the running gag of, like, Essex Factor, Essex Men. I know, I know, I love it. And then you have Essex Force, and you have Generation Essex. Oh, it would be so good. Professor Essex. So Essex rushes home to make nice with Rebecca to change the horrible course of his life and finds that his experiment victims were in fact freed by Rebecca and Rebecca herself is inside dying after a miscarriage that she's had due to sudden stress at seeing all of the evil shit Essex has been doing. Oh, snap. Essex, of course, vows to save her, to fix everything. You must hold on. I shall save you. I shall use all my genius. Rebecca is, if anything, even less impressed on her deathbed than she was before. Your genius. See where your so-called genius has brought us, Nathaniel. In the end, I felt and feel no love for you. You have made me lose my child. To me, you are... Utterly and contemptibly sinister. And then she dies. Meanwhile, Apocalypse is trying to beat some information out of his captive Cyclops. Like, hey, why does this dude have powers? Why does he bother protecting weaker people? What can he tell Apocalypse about what Apocalypse himself is? He thought he was unique, but apparently he's not. Now, Apocalypse isn't doing this on his own. He has... A whole bunch of fancy technology, remember? Including basically ship, and it is there to help. And I love the narration of what the machines do to restrain Cyclops' optic blast. Alien metal flows like cool lava. His optic blasts burn through it, but the clever metal speedily reconstitutes its chemical makeup. Like a species adapting to new environments. Until a new element is born. 
impervious to Cyclops' force beams. It's the secret origin of Ruby Quartz, which also explains how Sinister was able to control Scott's powers in the orphanage in the present day using it. I also really appreciate that almost everything is at least an indirect reference to evolution. It really just keeps the entire story feeling very cohesive. Well, it was it was such an obsessive lens on so much for Victorians. I mean, this is this is something you see come up in just a huge amount of like like there's, there's the whole section of In Memoriam AHH that's about it. That's basically using the idea of evolution as a means of coming to terms with, you know, the death of a loved one, for instance. And yeah, it was it was huge. It was it was this massive, massive paradigm shift. And it didn't just change the way that people saw, you know, humanity in relation to animals or humanity in relation to the Bible. It really changed their perspective on everything, on the world, on how it worked. Well said, yeah. And seeing like a superhero comic tackle that societal shift through the eyes of one of the glamest supervillains out there is quite the feat. It is, yeah. This is this is again, this is a really well-researched and well-presented comic. I mean, obviously there, you know, there are errors, there are anachronisms, but it's there there are so many of those little footholds. Oscar leads Jean to Apocalypse's base to rescue her husband. Unfortunately, Jean gets captured, and now Apocalypse has a pair of X-Men. Oscar himself thankfully escapes to rally all the proto-Morlocks, who then go to try to save Scott and Jean, including the formerly traumatized and now speaking, well, I guess still traumatized, but, you know, healed a little bit, Danny, a.k.a. Tiny Tim. Yeah, we decided Danny's Tiny Tim because he's tiny, adorable, and perpetually impaired. Imperiled. Indeed he is. As this rescue is occurring, Apocalypse isn't at his base. He's too busy at the Hellfire Club explaining his plan. That's right. Essex will engineer a plague, which will help Apocalypse control the first generation of mutants, and the club will nurture war and all of the worst impulses of mankind, leading to things like, you know, World War II, well, first World War I, then World War II, and generally escalating horribleness. Give me war, gentlemen. Give me despair. Give me carnage. France against Prussia. Russia against Japan. Brother against brother. Workers against workers. Whites against blacks. For the age of apocalypse, the era in which only the fit survive, begins now! And he hands Scott and Jean over to Essex for experimentation, pending Essex's, again, looming ultimatum whether or not he's, he's going to let Apocalypse transform him. Right now, Essex is really intrigued at how someone who also lost a child the way he did could keep being a good guy. And Cyclops answers. It's called not forgetting where you come from, Essex. It's called not forgetting the pain that you've had, but not letting it twist you either. It's called being human. Well, are you or aren't you? Apparently that answer is going to be a great big no, because Essex gets into Apocalypse's horrible Transformo machine. It is this impressive mix of tubes and probes and buzz saws, all looking very dirty and jagged, along with super high technology next to it. 
I really love how Apocalypse's celestial technology, which is literally alien in origin, looks especially alien in this era. Yeah, agreed. And Apocalypse has one rule, and that is that before Essex is transformed, to go with his new life, to go with his new goals, he has to give himself a new name. And Essex, remembering his wife's last words to him, without missing a beat, goes with Sinister. Taking us to the final issue of the miniseries, Beginnings. Written by Peter Milligan, penciled by John Polyon, inked by Sean Martinborough, colored by Kevin Summers, lettered by Richard Starkings, Comicraft, and Dave Lanfear. Now when Essex emerges from Apocalypse's device, now fully sinister, Scott's first instinct is, of course, that they should kill him. Gene disagrees, and it's a moot point because Scott can't quite bring himself to do it. Do we buy Scott genuinely wanting to murder Mr. Sinister? I mean, Mr. Sinister did a lot of horrible, horrible stuff to Scott, but is Scott a killer even in those circumstances? I mean, he has literally done it before. I guess that's true. He did blow Sinister into basically a skeleton at the end of Inferno. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is not only the man who has killed multiple people he loved, manipulated generation on generation of his family, but was basically his horrifically abusive parent figure for years. And, I mean, yeah, I I 100% buy this. I absolutely buy both Scott immediately figuring that the correct thing to do is to kill Sinister and his inability to do it. Fair enough, and well said. Scott and Gene are trying to figure out what the hell they're supposed to be doing, because Essex has become sinister. I mean, that can't be good, right? He's working for Apocalypse. That can't be good, right? And the first thing we learn about Sinister is that his transformation has, if anything, only increased his capacity for amazing, brilliant drama. Oh, this dialogue. I do believe I have undergone what amounts to an industrial revolution of the mind. Blessed ice flows in my veins. The fierce light of clarity burns in my eyes. Nathaniel Essex, whose moral baggage prevented me from reaching the highest summit of knowledge, is no more. I now take my first step as Mr. Sinister. And then he runs outside and yells, Boy, what day is it? And then the boy says, Why, it's Christmas Day, sir. But no, Sinister has already learned to talk about himself in the third person and to end most paragraphs by saying his own name. He is a quick study. Right? He is also super intrigued by both Cyclops' ethics and his powers. Um, I also, I should point out too, that he he also emerged from from his tank with intricately styled hair because, you know, Apocalypse is Apocalypse. We have learned many things about Ensabanur over the years. We know he's an amazing manager, and we know that part of that care for his employees is always ensuring that their employee uniforms are immaculately designed and tailored and personalized to each individual person, just a little bit, just to show that he knows them and cares. Well, that and that going to work for and being transformed and souped up by Apocalypse always, always involves a careful and loving makeover. 
Sinister's Victorian look is real fucking cool. I mean, we have all the yeah. standbys. We have the big diamond in his chest and on his forehead. We have that weird ribbon cape. We have the giant boots. But it also looks like a Victorian gentleman's suit combined with all that science fiction nonsense. Oh, he's such a creep. I love it. Even after this transformation, Scott will not give up on trying to convince Sinister to turn on Apocalypse. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier is that a that Sinister isn't much of an orator, and one of the things that's easy to forget about Cyclops is that he is. He is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly good argumentative speaker. And I mean, he's got that background in radio, but we've also seen him do stuff like talk a bunch of Sentinels into flying into the sun and basically change New York City's entire opinion on mutants through one impassioned TV spot. And that's the Scott who's come through here, and he's realizing how you get through to Sinister, and he he points out that, you know, forget ethics, Apocalypse is only going to let you use science for conquest, war, and destruction. He is not, you think you're going to be able to pursue your pet projects, you aren't. You're going to blow them up. Exactly. And I suspect this is the argument that actually ends up getting through to Sinister for real. Nonetheless, unfortunately, this was a load-bearing transformation, and this building is falling the hell apart. Now, Daniel and Oscar... Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim. Right, they flee, but they run into a creepy, decaying Reaver Cootie Tremble. He is not okay. He is, is unable to sustain the rate at which his body is mutating, the implants in it. He's in a horrible amount of pain. He's basically decaying. He's also impervious to telepathy, so Gene can't help him, and Sinister walks up and snaps his neck. Sinister's really unimpressed with Apocalypse's approach to human augmentation. Like, it's crude, it's artless, it's just cruelty for the sake of cruelty, and explains to both Scott and Gene, and the reader, his take on the matter. The hastily transformed marauders are a travesty of the dream I have for the new species. The correct bloodlines must be bred naturally to produce the most racially supreme beings. This must not be allowed to happen again. I care nothing for his suffering, per se, and one must be willing to be cruel in the search for truth. But cruelty for no purpose is ignorance, and ignorance is the greatest enemy of science. Gene follows up the left jab of Cyclops' logic with the right hook of an emotional appeal and makes a think-of-the-children argument. That also makes some dent, as Sinister tells them that they may want to swing by Buckingham Palace on their way out of the 1850s. Where Apocalypse is going to assassinate the Queen to begin his whole causing the world to descend into carnage. So apparently a ton of the details in the Royals' conversation in Buckingham Palace are incorrect, mostly dates. I read this whole thing on it. Maybe that's the worst part of anachronisms in this story, but also maybe the Royals just don't know what the hell they're talking about. I do appreciate the detail that Albert panics in German, though. Subtitle, panics in German. Basically. So Scott and Jean interrupt Apocalypse. They fight. Apocalypse initially kicks their asses, but he abruptly weakens, and Scott and Jean are able to take him down pretty easily, and then they wipe a bunch of Royals' memories and get tugged back into the time stream. Cyclops is really upset that they apparently failed. I mean, they couldn't stop Sinister. He still became Sinister. 
They did stop Apocalypse, which is something, and Sanctity also makes the point that if Essex hadn't become sinister, if he hadn't been what he was, Scott's kid wouldn't exist. There would be no one to challenge Apocalypse in the far future. And Scott and Jean at this point, really no one's quite sure what they were there specifically to do, to persuade Essex to become sinister, to stop Apocalypse. Either way, again, what they've got is a closed time loop where the changes they've made in the past are the ones that are necessary for the future they've already lived. And so I guess it's back to the Ghostbusters containment unit for the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. And also for the ghost of Christmas past, because Apocalypse confronts Sinister back in 1859, finds out what's, what's happened. Sinister made the pathogen to target only Apocalypse, and Apocalypse is impressed enough by this not to kill Sinister for it before he goes back into hibernation. Sinister, however, is troubled. Yeah, he has sold his soul to something much larger and much more powerful than he realized. And he's going to have to do a lot of study and a lot of tracking down of the things that he now knows that are, knows are out there if he's going to hope to actually stop his jerk boss when he wakes up again. However, Essex's former employees have gotten themselves a nice Christmas goose and landed at Ellis Island in America, posing as father and son. This is about a year later, and speaking of time loops, these are Oscar and Daniel, and they decide they're going to choose a new name, and in honor of the person who rescued them, Daniel picks Summers, and these are, in fact, Cyclops' ancestors. Because of course they are. Time loop! But just like the cinematic version of Return of the King, we're not done with endings and epilogues yet. And see, I really, for a lot of reasons, wish that they'd, they'd closed with Danny Summers. One of the reasons is that I think it's a much neater ending, and the other reason is, of course, that, that you know, Tiny Tim closes the Christmas Carol. Exactly. Come on. Haven't these people read their dickens? I mean, they based an entire story off of his book. I mean, at this point, I feel like a lot of the Christmas Carol stuff is just sort of in public knowledge. Like, have you ever actually read the book? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things I know so well from various sources that I genuinely don't know if I've read the book or if I just think I've read the book. See, there you go. Like, you can you can watch six different versions of it streaming, you know, in, in, in one night. Like, I've read it, but I also did a ton of Victorian lit in college. I don't remember if we've talked about this before, like in a Hawk Talk or something, but Jay, what's your favorite movie version of A Christmas Carol? Ooh, that's a really good question. I actually haven't seen that many of them. Okay, I've seen a few. Uh, there's an old black and white one that I don't even remember what year it's from that was really good that I grew up with, but I gotta say, Muppet Christmas Carol, it's basically perfect. Yeah, I was gonna say, of the ones I've seen, that's pretty much my favorite. It's it, it's a really solid movie and retelling, and it's also also kind of has a special place in my heart just because of the way it's put together. It's It was the first Muppet movie without Jim Henson um, after he died. And so it's the first one where someone else is doing Kermit's voice, which is why Kermit is such a secondary character in it. Oh, oh, that's actually a really sweet way of handling that. And Robin's yeah, it really is. bigger. Well, anyway, like we were saying before we got sidetracked, we do get another brief epilogue with Sinister going to the funeral of Darwin. Not the X-Men character, like Charles Darwin. I mean, it might also be the X-Men character. It's not. And... Yeah, again, it's not it's not bad, and it's it's a moment of full circle for Sinister. But honestly, everything he says here is stuff that he's expressed before, and 
it feels a bit tacked on. Like, I think I really do think that the, the summer's surname reveal would have been a stronger ending for reasons that have nothing to do with the fact that we've decided to pretend that this is a Christmas carol. All of that said, though, what a miniseries. I remembered being fine with this miniseries and reading it more closely for the podcast. I now kind of love this miniseries. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's perfect by any means, but it's really good. Yeah, it's solid. It's interesting. It's fun. It gives Sinister a lot more depth. I think also that the first time I read it, I really didn't appreciate the gothic, how deliberate the gothic horror trappings were. Exactly, yeah. I think I didn't understand the genre that it was such a beautiful example of. It's kind of like when I saw The Fifth Element but didn't understand camp and so I didn't like The Fifth Element. Right, like, yes, Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix is incredibly overwrought. That's the point. Exactly. So, Vita, Leah, Tini, first of all, thank you so much for stopping by. Second, thank you so much for sitting so patiently while we recorded all the continuity stuff. Our pleasure. It it was really something to hear about all those beards. They're just so beautifully inked. (laughs) I wish my beard was that beautifully inked. We're really bad about this, the three of us, when we get in the same space, be it metaphorical or literal, we just lose time talking to each other. Yeah, so honestly, we didn't even notice how long you were gone. (laughs) Don't even worry about it. I mean, it could have been 48 hours, could have been like 90 years. Cool. There was time travel involved, so you know. Um, But, so, we are obviously very familiar with you. I suspect many of our listeners are, but for those of them who are not, we should probably introduce you. Or you should introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you're writing and what they should be reading. Okay, I'll start. I'm Teeny Howard. I write a book called Excalibur uh, right now for the current Dawn of X line, and I was the co-writer on Ten of Swords with Jonathan Hickman that just wrapped up and... uh, and I'm working on cool stuff for 2021 as well. So, Tini, you might actually be able to answer a question that I've had for a while. Is Jonathan Hickman a real person? He would hate knowing that I answered that. I'll answer. Uh, he is, but he is a wizard. Like, so he doesn't really okay. count. The truth that we should just get off our chest at the top of this podcast is he is and he's wonderful. Okay. Good to hear. We've, we've had a bunch of, a bunch of like near miss attempts to attempts to book book him and they're the kind of things that i would kind of expect if he were someone who like a group of other people had made up and were trying to keep secret <laughs> but so if i feel just, like i need to check he just keeps strange hours that's all wizard's hours that exactly. makes sense yeah yeah exactly. he does keep weird hours. can i clarify though that he wasn't he's 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 not a human wizard uh he definitely is like a cat wizard that got trapped in a human body. So like it's a real yeah, I mean, we're not actually sure what kind of wizard I would say he is. But what we do know is that he's more feral than anybody would expect of him. But he's also <laughs> like an ancient, ageless, immortal being who has always existed. Um, so we're he's an external. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to suss out if he's like, you know, cat wizard or something like that. <laughs> He's a uh, he's as weird as the rest of us, which is why the books are so delightful right now. <laughs> I'm segue back and say that he he doesn't get talked about anymore because he didn't he didn't show up. But uh, we've got two yeah. more of you to introduce. <laughs> get out of here. Um, Enough about it. I'll I'll go next. Uh, my name is Leah Williams, and I'm writing X Factor for Marvel Comics. I'm I'm part of the same 
line as these other two. <laughs> we're we're all working in the same X Men sandbox right now. Uh, and I'm Vida Ayala, and I'm writing uh, New Mutants for this current X line, and also uh, Children of the Atom sometime in the future in 2021. They promised. And of course, the fourth X writer we have with us right here is you, Jay, because you wrote right. Marvel Snapshot Cyclops. Yeah, yeah but I'm not like doing That's right. current or for Coaline X books, so I don't think I count for purposes of that on this one. Only because you keep tweeting your you pitches instead of pitching them. Yeah, but they're all things. They're they're all things like. Well, I didn't tweet this one, but they're all things like like uh, an alternate universe where Mister Sinister was born forty years earlier and kills the vibe at all of Lord Byron's parties. Yeah, but you don't think that would be a series? Like, first of all, sleep that so you can actually pitch it, and secondly, I'm like, just gonna start talking directly to Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Matt. Go ahead and just bleep that because Jay's gonna pitch it. Yeah. <laughs> He's in the future. Matt is stressed about this. <laughs> I know giving us the power of knowing your audio editor's name is too much. We yeah. will abuse this privilege. Happy holidays, Matt. Thanks for your hard work. <laughs> Sorry in advance and also from the past. Again, there's a lot of time travel involved. I mean, it's X-Men. You all know how it goes. I just watched Tenant, so it's very similar, I imagine, right? Pretty similar. This, is, this podcast is a temporal pincer move. <laughs> <laughs> That's our new blurb that goes on the... Uh... <laughs> I think this podcast is probably better than Tenet. Let's be real. I really like Tenet. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. I, I, I have no. It, but Tenet has yet to pay my rent, so my votes with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, thank you all so much for being here, and also for writing really good comics. Like it's kind of hard to oh, pick gosh. favorite favorites in the Dawn of X era because basically everything is great. But you're all doing books I love dearly. So thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for oh, reading, thank you, Miles. Right? I'm actually kind of mad at how good the entire X-Line is. Like, I can't be like, well, I'll, I'll just wait on that one. Like, there's nothing that I don't continually Oh, try, read. like, reading them and also knowing that you have to write one that has to stand up to the rest of these fucking knockouts. It's, like, the best and worst thing ever. <laughs> so like, have you ever seen um, that picture of, like... A little kitty cat hanging out with a bunch of giant Rottweilers. That's how I yes. feel every day. And um, it's actually kind of the best feeling because eventually you learned that all of these Rottweilers are just secret little kitty cats too. Or wizards. Yeah. They teach you how to walk and how to bark loud yeah. and where all the best bones are buried. Yeah. <laughs> good dogs. <laughs> good dogs. <laughs> so I'm new. Actually, I'm so. I'm really curious about that because I know right now too the the whole team on the X books is is pretty tight and y'all chat and stuff. Like, how collaborative is is the process around or the the core process from which all of the individual books that emerge intensely and organically, incredibly. Um, yeah, yeah, at this point of like codependently, yes, so that's exactly like, the word I was going to use. Like just for like not not through any sort of. Um, mandate just through like a natural comfort we tend to like before we really break open an idea we just like soft pitch it to the group as like hey is this a good idea does this you know does this plot point work for anyone else and it's like 
it's just, uh, we, it's something that started because we are working within the same Krakoan world. So we have to stay on the same page and kind of lockstep in terms of like what's going on around the Island and you know, how it, it reflects against the larger Marvel universe. But eventually it shifted into something where we were all sort of realizing like, Oh wait, this is way more fun kind of collaborating like this. And what's the word that John uses? That's not, holistic john calls it something holistic mm-hmm. and it was that way before the pandemic and now we're codependent yes. um <laughs> I, I feel like well i feel like too this is a group of some of the best team players that i've ever like oh, seen yeah. assembled there's no ego before like everyone is super like oh look at this cool thing they're all just from top to bottom including john um he's reaching through this podcast to like stop me from talking uh is is just super excited to work with other people and also probably lonely <laughs> just writing is super lonely right so it's like oh my god now i have people to share every single second but they're of this also with. all just um, so as excited and amped about you know what we're working on as i am it's it's been pretty revolutionary for all of us i i think oh my and if you're like a, yeah. a person like me who grew up like a little baby fandom nerd and like wrote fanfic and stuff it's really catnippy because it's like you you know i'm a fan of all these books i'm a, I'm a fan of hellions i'm a fan of x factor and new mutants and marauders and uh, x-force and, and all of them i'm i'm a fan so i i read stuff and i see stuff and i can respond to it like i can yeah. canonically respond and, yeah, and catch, like, <laughs> you know, catch the past from another writer and, and, you know, collaborate with them to make stuff go farther. And, uh, it feels, it's really, really the cool. It's really cool. Unmatched. <laughs> Especially in 2020 when yes. that shit is in short supply. <laughs> I remember straight in cooperation. Yeah. Right yeah. in the vein. Helioscope Studio got started because a bunch of people grew up on the Marvel comics that had, you know, the big bullpen open office where all the writers and artists worked together and then were really disappointed when they found out that wasn't a reality. And it kind of feels like you've built up the virtual equivalent. Oh, absolutely. Almost around the X line. Absolutely. It's great even for that stuff, just like little stuff, you know, and the, one of the cool things about working in the Marvel universe as a whole is getting to, to mine stuff. And um, it's cool to add new toys and it's also cool to play with the toys that are there. Um, and it's really, really fun because in a collaborative sense, you can play with toys that like maybe someone else has just resurrected and pulled out of like either literally or figuratively in our world uh, and, <laughs> you know, pulled out of the toy box. Um you know, we can say like, like we don't always have rooms in our books because we only get, you know, 20 pages a month to tell our stories. So we don't always have all the room to expand all the threads we want to. And so sometimes things can get carried in other books. It's oh so yeah. That's fun. a really, really fre- frequent thing that happens is we'll like what? share kind of an open-ended thing that we're setting up. Like, Hey, just so everybody knows this new, um, toy has been added to the toy box in case anybody wants to like play a tiki with bar. it <laughs> yeah like a tiki, like bar, a tiki or, bar um all of the academy x kids being back you know something like that and um like it never gets discarded it, it all gets picked back up again um and you know it it shows up in everybody else's books whoever wants to use it to i think that it's a really strengthening process for the books overall. I mean, I can say this personally, like the the jump in my writing has become 
um, so much stronger than it was before this process, because now I'm behind the curtain and I'm seeing the way so much of this is happening when before, like even during Age of X-Men, Vita and I were both kind of working as individuals in a vacuum. We weren't um, collaborating as closely. And we thought that was kind of like the way things had to be. And it wasn't until this that we're like, oh, okay, no, this is way better. <laughs> and I think it works especially well in the current Krakoan paradigm where you have, you know, mutants as a community more than they've ever been. And so mm-hmm. seeing these characters and these ideas and these concepts cross-pollinate the way you're describing, like, that really adds to that thematically. That also, uh, speaking personally, makes me want to buy like all the books, which I guess is pretty good for for you guys and for Marvel. <laughs> but it um, that's something that I always appreciated back in the '90s when it worked, and was really bothered by when it didn't. And so, seeing now that it's working more thoroughly than I think it ever has before in the X line, at least you know maybe not since Claremont and Louis Simonson were working so closely together. As a fan, that is phenomenally satisfying and phenomenally exciting. That's how we feel about it too, honestly. And the the community aspect of it, the community healing and community helping, community building is something that the writers, like we've, we've talked about this on our like ex-writer Zoom calls. And once we realized what was happening, we were like, are we, we're doing this, we're committing to this, aren't we? We are going to protect this world and, and let people thrive here for as long as we can. Um, and you know, like being, a, uh, an X-Men fan <laughs> for a long time and kind of coming up in coming of age in the X-Men fandom and writing fanfic, like teeny, like Vita, like we all did this also instills you with a sense of like tragedy. You begin to expect bad things to happen. You are sort of like, flinching before you know what's in the pipeline and you know this is just like the x-men experience we all know this um but when we (laughs) had that talk um it, it it was like a commitment to not doing that and such such an exhilarating thing to realize as like a writer and a fan um that we get to keep this place alive I remember when we did uh, the episode in Seattle. Was it Seattle? So there was one in Seattle now. and there was one in New York, I think. So Seattle, yeah, because it was right after Age of X-Men. Yeah. Um, I, I remember we got asked what we thought was fundamental to being a mutant mm-hmm. and to be, or X-Men, and I remember I answered loneliness. I think that like that was just like a fundamental thing that a mutant was, and I feel like we were in an era where like, they're, they're, you're healing from that. Yeah. That's no longer the case. That's not a defining feature of, of mutants and of the X-Men. I think my answer in Seattle was the found family. And that is exactly yes. what we have done now with this new era. And I don't know, I, I, I call this canon, but it's like real life. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we call Jerry Uncle Jerry and we call Uncle Jerry. He loves it. <laughs> John is co- referred to as like Papa a lot. Yeah, Papa and Jordan is Mom. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It just it feels like it totally feels like a family vibe. Well, and I feel like you know, it just happened that like 
this whole message comes during a year when so many of us are really, really lonely and like desperate to feel something like this. Right. And, you know, we didn't know this was, you know, nobody could have known this was coming. Well, arguably there are people that knew it was coming and did nothing. Anyway, uh, nobody could have known that this was going to happen. So, you know, uh, in Excalibur 12, you know, it's, uh, you know, Apocalypse has that speech where he talks about the death of distance um, and like how one of the things that the externals always had that now all mutants have, thanks to Krakoa and the gates made up by someone who's really smart that we're not talking about anymore. Um, <laughs> one of like the huge gifts of that as a storyteller is both the literal ease of being like, oh, great, your char our characters can be halfway around the world or on other planets and they can hop through a gate. That's super useful. Um, and then the other side of that being like the, the death of distance is really meaningful for people who have been historically denied community. Um, the fact that nothing can keep them apart is something that is like for me like god i wish i had like someone asked uh some question thing <laughs> yeah. where it was some we all answered some survey thing and it was like uh what mutant do you want to hang out with this year or something and i was like i don't care so long as they take me to krakoa like <laughs> yeah yeah especially right now and i mean in both in the face of the the history leah that you were talking about with with the x line being you know built on loss in a lot of ways and with this year the joy and intimacy they're just endemic to krakoa feel really important and really revolutionary i feel exactly the same way and at my very first um x summit meeting which would have been like you know, the first wave of books, Teeny, John, all of them, their second X summit meeting, but it was the first for Vita and me. Um, one of the moments that really like seared itself in my brain was, um, you know, we had been sitting down for like half an hour or something at this point, we're just like ramping up and getting into things. And John, um, <clears throat> sorry, our, our wizard, um, he, he like, slapped his palm on the table because he was explaining kind of like a core concept uh, behind like this entire revitalization of the line. And he was like, we have to give them wins because he was referring to, you know, this legacy of unyielding tragedy in the X-Men line. And like he, the fact that this wizard was so adamant and passionate about it, like we have to give them wins. And he meant readers. He did not mean the X-Men themselves. He was talking about fans. And the fan in me heard that and just like ascended. It, it, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> That's his dirty little secret is that he's also yeah. a fan. <laughs> so something I've, I've seen a lot of folks saying online and something that I've been experiencing this last week as I marathon reread through the last year in preparation for the Corbos is that it just it it the x line feels fun yeah yes yes we're all, we're having, all having fun life. doing it yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. it's a blast to write also crying but and i think i think the last time it felt this generally just i don't know if playful is quite the word i'm i'm looking for but but joyous full of possibility and just fun and joyous was maybe maybe secret wars but that was all miniseries and that was all you know non-central canon yeah 
and that this is this is the big stuff this is the real thing feels yeah again again like krakoa like you know revolutionary joy yes absolutely that's a good phrase revolutionary joy is gonna stick out in my head for yeah forever now <laughs> yeah i feel like i feel like that is revolutionary right now like you know, I don't mean like, oh, everything's grim and dark, but I mean, it, because it's so hard to feel joy right now that it's just like. <laughs> I, I was just thinking out. that like yesterday and yesterday was um, or was it yesterday? The, the 21st. Um, Black people get superpowers day. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. So watching that happen. I got my. Like, it, <laughs> There are a few things that feel as triumphant and just and good as seeing black people be happy and joyful (laughs) and like being able to just express this kind of jubilance. Um, like that is the most revolutionary thing. And I, I think that in, in, you know, this political climate, especially with everything going on, the pandemic too, being able to give people an opportunity to feel something like that, it has been a sort of radicalization process for me. Um, where yeah, Moira. I, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> where it, it matters in a different way. It mattered before. Um, and it's all the more significant now keeping the gates open, making sure that there is a place where people can come and feel safe and happy and joyous. That is revolutionary. Yeah, it feels it feels re- really lucky this year to be able to escape yeah. to Krakoa. Like it's yes. it's really it's really healing and uh, yeah, I just I feel so 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 super lucky to have this place both creatively and fiction like and you know this both this sandbox to play in creatively and also these people to work with uh, professionally. Yeah, you know these these are my siblings right here that I'm darkened your doorstep with with these ghosts you know (laughs) (laughs) ten of swords for me was like like i know i wrote an issue but like i was just full fan mode like i was just like oh my god do you see this do you see that whole process they have a million swords there's a million (laughs) and also just there was like the watching fans um even like people who were like I don't even read X-Men, but I'm reading this. Like, this is, I want to read this. Being like, uh, I don't know, man. I've never seen so many people go, oh my God, they're there. And they're there too. This is crazy. Yeah. How do you fit so many X-Men? I'm like, it's one island. It's one island. They're all, also, they're all and this is This is what we do. Like, this is what the X-Line is now. It's community. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I, there is one thing that's on the tip of my tongue that I want to say about, um, like, the fandom vibe and how that has changed um, in recent years, because I, or the past year, I would say, um, I, I think in any conversation when we're talking about how the X-Men fandom has changed over the past year, it's also a really important thing to note that it's not just because of the books that, you know, we're putting out right now. It's also because of you guys. I know you saw like that Mother Jones article about how Mm -hmm. y'all like completely transformed the X-Men fandom. And there, there would be no way of us as creators being able to kind of witness, um, 
you know, the joy that readers are feeling from a distance without you guys first providing like an inclusive space a space yeah, yeah, for people to talk about these things. And it's amazing. And, and, and the way that y'all yes. protect that space is something that I've been, you know, I've really admired just not just from listening, but from being able to be at like those yes. live events and stuff, the way that you, you know, y'all moderate and y'all make sure that people are heard when they need to be heard, but also that no one is like stepping on anyone. That's what X-Men feels like. It's something really joyous. I mean, you all are and have been always part of that space and part of what defined it too. And having, having that openness and accessibility. And I think, I mean, having, having creators who identify not only with, but as fans has been such a major sea change in comics in the last decade and such a, positive shift yeah i agree i agree it, across the board i think for comics in general but it, i think especially for comics with a, a legacy like x-men i feel like it's really important that the people that are working on them whether they be writers editors artists colorists letter whatever like you you gotta love it and that shows when you're doing it i just wanted to say that i have uh actually a little shelf in front of my desk where i work and it has like all my little betsy's and stuff on it but it also has on it and i see it every day when i work a, a little zine called how to be a mutant a brief practical guide oh my god i have mine too <laughs> and i have mine uh, i love my it so so much <laughs> yeah um and i keep on we, meaning to reformat that you know we so don't have... stick it up for free on gumroad and not doing it and i should I will try to so, do that by the time this episode goes up. You yeah, you really okay. should. I I'm just like wanted to say up thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, it's such a beautiful piece. I have read it again and again this year, Jay, and I just uh, you know, we don't have a Christmas poem, but if I could just read the last few sentences of it this year because I think it's so fitting this year and it's so beautiful and I've read it so many times. These are these are Jay's words, but I think they're beautiful. Uh, number 6, seek. Know that you are not alone and you will never be unloved. Your mutant family is larger than you can dream. We will find you or let ourselves be found, and we will welcome you with open arms. Number seven, survive. Never doubt that you are a future worth fighting for. Yeah, I just read that again and again this year, and I always, I think it's beautiful work, Jay. Thank you so much. That's, it's one of my favorite, I, I wrote it, um, Actually, that's the thing that came directly out of the podcast community, because one of there there's a kid who's on the discord who I feel like has kind of grown up on the discord because they're they're like 16 now. And I remember when they started like their first day of high school. So this 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 kid is amazing and brilliant and fantastic and super creative and made this massive, massive. um, Digital X-Men zine, which may if it's still available um, it was it was just a free download and I will I will put a link up to it because it was great. And I was extremely oh, honored to be one of like three token adults in it. And um and I, I spent and, and this was and it's I've I've you know, I've I'm gonna say I freaked out more over trying to get this right than I have anything else that I've written. Because like when I'm getting paid for it, there's there's obviously like professional exchange, but like this is important. This felt like this felt like such a big deal to be allowed to be in this thing in the first place. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm in my late 30s and um, I still kind of freak out when a teenager thinks I'm cool. So 
Oh, teenagers <laughs> are terrifying. Their eyes are sharp. They're their mouths are unchained. They're all brilliant now, too. Like, they, they all have... Oh, they, God, yeah. They, they've all grown up with lexicons and tools that just didn't exist. Yeah. Access to tools and critical thinking. The community that you guys have fostered with Explain the X-Men is also so... So incredible to to see and learn about um, and find as like a queer X Men fan in particular. Um, Absolutely, because one thing that you know I would say is not public knowledge necessarily in terms of um, like a coming of age experience with queerness is how it's not like a light switch that you, you turn on. It is definitely a process that you, you begin and, and you, you learn and you learn yourself over time. And the fact that you guys have provided a safe space for these queer kids who love X-Men to come and talk about this stuff with each other. And, you know, also just talk about like queerness in a safe space um, is incredible. Thank you. And Jay, so so much much of that is you. So credit to to you as well. But yes, thank you so much. Like if if that can be the legacy of this podcast, then I I have no complaints about anything ever. Well, so much of that too. And I'm I'm not I'm okay, I am totally trying to dodge credit because I do that. But (laughs) I'm also trying to evenly express something that I think is really important. Um, because I feel like this was a really, really direct if you build it, they will come situation. Because we we made the spaces and they were instantly flooded with people who continued to be part of and set their tone. That's how you know like, there was a it was it was a desperate need for something like that. Yeah, this this the we we might have you know built doors and 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 a roof, but the land was there and the people were there and what it's grown into since is, is so much bigger. And it's, it's, it's also something that, that one of, one of the coolest things I think that we've done that's come out of this is that there are a lot of podcasts that are, are in, in various ways, kind of our podcast kids. Yeah. Indirectly or that I (laughs) think of that way. And but no, what I was going to say, but if there's if there's a takeaway from it, it's to it's to build the spaces that and the to have the conversations you want to have and build the spaces for those conversations to happen. Like part of part of the one of the really nice things about the Internet and the 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 not not dissolution of geography, but, ex, you know, cross geographic accessibility. Like Krakoan Gates. Yes. Like the case. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very, yeah, a, a shadow of that, but there's, there is the community that you are looking for that is into loving the thing you love in the way that you love it exists. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I think that that part of the, the, the metaphor, you know, uh, really does like, have meaning like I um I wrote about that a little bit uh when at the beginning of Excalibur when Richter like tells himself he can't go to Krakoa like because of a fear and a suspicion he has because he feels like he's losing control of his powers because he feels like he'll ruin it for everyone else and like that 
that was like some heavy metaphor peanut butter on the sandwich for, for me. Like <laughs> the idea of denying yourself community because you feel like you're inherently, it's not, it's meant for, you know, for good queers, not for you, the bad one. Like, you know, that that's um, because not all of our, our experiences are neat, you know? Uh, and it's, it's so cool to get to, to work through that stuff uh, on the page and then to talk about it on a podcast and then feel like you just exposed your whole chest, your heart to everyone. <laughs> uh, it's scary, but oh well, it's already been printed. Enjoy my guts. I mean, for what it's worth, um, <laughs> that was that was definitely a bit where I, I had to pause because it hit so close to home. Oh, <laughs> so speaking of well x factor and all the books you're all working on so you're all working on x books that have long and storied histories that have had multiple runs over the years and they're all recognizable as new volumes of those books but they're also all very much fresh starts and they're all unique and i was really curious how you approach that how do you find you know what the core of new mutants or excalibur or x factor is and make it your own at the same time I want to tell the story of how Excalibur, I, Leah is speaking. I want to tell the story of how Excalibur came about because I'm going to be able to say nice things about Teeny that she's never going to be able to say about herself. And it's just such a cool just, story that indicates. Hey, Matt, you can just take out the whole part where people say nice <laughs> things about me. Just ignore Teeny. Um, because, no, can I tell the story? Matt is out to so, lunch. <laughs> Matt's not having it. Basically, at the first, Stop. I wasn't here for this, but at the first X Summit meeting, um, after uh, Papa Wizard like debuted his new plan and the direction of the line and where everything was going, um, all the writers like went away for a night, went back to their hotel rooms, and Teeny kept not quite, but but this is good for drama, so I'll let you. I'll, I'll, this is, I'm, I'm mythologizing yeah, a bit. The, the details are are are. Are fudged here, but I'm gonna let you do it because I'm I'm an anthropologist at heart, and I like seeing how myths change. <laughs> <laughs> also, this is like how the story is in my head too. Like I, <laughs> I've told this story a few times, and it gets more dramatic every time. <laughs> so, so, like, I've heard it at least. Ten of swords came good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be like ten of swords happened when Teeny Howard got on the table and challenged Jonathan Hickman to a duel, which he lost. That's, That's not right. <laughs> Ten of Swords That's happened right. because we were like, all right, so we need to do an event. What's cool? Swords. What's cooler than like one sword? sword. More, more, more swords. swords. We just started more chanting swords. and hitting large the table. Wife. I don't remember that. Yeah. That was true. Yes. We large, chanted large until wife also. large wife. Yeah. And Jordan had to call in people to tranquilize us <laughs> and then they got mad. It's fine. And we wouldn't stop. Okay. So anyway, like the Papa Hickman, sorry, wizard debuted his new X-Men line, his ideas for it. And, you know, the writers like were digesting that and thinking about it for a while. And Teeny started to think about what the development of mutant magic would look like because now they finally have the opportunity to like grow and, and evolve these ideas because they're not so worried about survival anymore. And, um, you know, she was thinking about it and what it would look like and who would be there and how it would happen. And when she presented these thoughts and ideas to, you know, this wizard afterwards, he paused for a second and he was like, well, you know what that is, right? That's Excalibur. <laughs> 
Yeah, and then well, yeah, that's more or less it. And then, uh, <laughs> and then at the same time, oh, and then also the other part of the story that I I love is that one of the things there were a couple like characters who were in a position at the beginning of this that we were like either they'd been sidelined and we knew we wanted to bring them back, or someone had a really good story for them that we knew we wanted to fit in, or they were in a period of flux and they could really use a makeover, you know. And uh, Betsy was one of those, you know, there was kind of this uh, and what of Betsy Braddock kind of tacked on to some of these early discussions. So the second part of that was John was like, what's Excalibur? And then at, like I, the way I remember it in my head at the same time, all three of us were like, oh, and Betsy's Captain Britain. Like, <laughs> like that it was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And so then it kind of that was like the thing that I originally came out of was this idea of both apocalypse as the. Um, the priest who would try to go back and reclaim the cultural development that was lost to his people, uh, which turns out to be in service of something much stranger and greater and more personal to him. And Betsy Braddock is uh, in the shoes of uh, what, you know, what is typically her brother, Brian Braddock. And we learn over the first 12 issues in Ten of Swords uh, whether or not she will be able to maintain her role as Captain Britain. Yeah, so that's how it pretty much happened for all of our books. To answer your question, where well, I'm mine. telling that story next. So <laughs> no, I'm telling no, this. Listen, I'm telling my and Teeny's reaction to it first um, because it had the same energy. Like you, I know you would not tell the story correctly, Vita. Like Vita's, Vita's entrance <laughs> to New Mutants was belated, you know, it, it was not given to them um, right off the bat. And uh, the no, real... I, I, I did have the privilege of following both Jonathan and Ed, um, who are both, uh, they laid down quite the gauntlet there. So They did. Absolutely. But um, the like reaction that teeny and i had when vita um like the day moments after vita had found out about this you know like had been asked um how do you feel about taking over new mutants uh vita came and talked to teeny and i about it um our reaction was instantaneous and loud (laughs) like it, it has this, the feeling that, and anybody who knows Vita's writing had the same reaction um, when, <laughs> when they found out about Vita writing New Mutants, which was like, holy shit, that's the best thing ever. Um, yes. I think that may actually be literally what TRI said to the other on learning that. Like, literally. And it is exactly the reaction that Teeny and I had and had to keep a secret for months until it was actually announced. Um, And thank God I didn't have to go anywhere or talk to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) But the moment Vita started working on New Mutants and like plotting it out and coming up with their stories for it, it it just affirmed like what Teeny called us being um, title hype witches <laughs> the day that we found out about it which was that this is perfect their ideas for it are, are perfect the pacing is perfect the character moments it is new mutants you are building this up so much Shut up. having so- just <laughs> issue, i mean i i can't 
guarantee that it maintains that. But the first issue lives it up to that. It gets better. High. As someone who has read the issues after what you just <laughs> read, it gets better every issue. It's very, very good. Vita and, and Rod are fire. Yeah. Rod, Rod is a dream to work with. <laughs> but it also maintains, like, you know, what you were saying, Miles, about the the recognizable aspects of these legacy books that we have. New Mutants, Vitas and Rods, New Mutants absolutely does this. It it maintains the the core vibe, like the the what makes New Mutants feel like New Mutants, just like Teenies does the, you know, the magic, the myth, the the quest narratives, what makes Excalibur feel like Excalibur. I feel like, too, I, I got off lucky in that, you know, things were already up and running, running, not just for the the, you know, new paradigm in the X line, but also in the book specifically. Um, so I had a lot of stuff that I was able to kind of dissect and see how they were laying down threads and, 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 and you know, what I really wanted to pull forward and, and what I felt was really core to the book and, and how to tease that out in my own style. Um, I was really lucky in that way. I feel like, um, you know, both Teeny and Leah had to kind of like whole cloth be like, this is exactly what, you know, Excalibur and X-Factor are now. I, I will build this this house. Whereas I was like, I'm just going to redecorate a little bit. There's some cobwebs. I'm just going to take that down. Like, I'm going to change the throw on the couch. Um, and then I'm going to invite everyone over for a party. Uh, which Remember was parties? Very lucky. Remember parties? Yeah. It's a myth. <laughs> Vita was the one who came up with, um, you know, this really strong, forward thinking, um, absolutely on point and correct concept of putting Warpath in tiny gym shorts, by the way. Yes. That was, that is a thing that I will take credit for. I did explicitly tell right Rod, this the is back. the outfit that he that needs like to be wearing, the first concept Vita thought of. <laughs> First appearance yeah. of Warpath thighs, honestly. Like, slab it, frame it, beautiful. it. Beautiful. <laughs> it's phenomenal. So I now with uh, Forge and Banshee. Rod is a gift. There, there are two things oh. that I want to tell folks who haven't picked up this book yet but are familiar with the podcast and the things that I get really opinionated <laughs> about. The first one is that... So I figured out really early on which character the intro was about. And... Fair. I'm fair. so so excited about <laughs> that focus from that direction it's not a it's nothing i ever expected and it's something that's it's it's, it's something that's simultaneously totally unexpected and totally overdue it's fantastic mm -hmm. the second thing is about the art and that is that rod Reese oh, draws is is a great artist in general but draws goddamn amazing warlock mm-hmm so good. Oh, Pegasus so good. Warlock, so good. It was a rod idea. Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent rod. <laughs> he's he's a genius. He also has a ton of fun with it. Like I, I try to give him as much room as I can because I've seen oh, what he oh, can yeah, do. So that was like, what I wanted to do. Uh, draw. Uh, just do whatever you want. Make um, sure. And I'll just throw weird suggestions and he's like, how do I make this weirder? <laughs> and way funnier. I, he's so funny. Screenshot of me. No making fun of Vita's scripting style in the New Mutants <laughs> channel on the X Slack in front of Vita's that editors. That is how it happened in the script. <laughs> because it is just so, like, read the adorable and wholesome to me the way, like, Vita will... Um, 
you know, throw out a suggestion and, and then be sure to say, and this is like in a script and then be sure to say like, Rod, but you do whatever you want. Like, don't feel beholden to that, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, Rod has already like sprinted off in, in the direction of that first example, which was giant kin, giant kin, you know, like they're just totally vibing I, right now. And it's so great. I mean, Leah has, um, the hardest job in the X line right now, legitimately, which is to go all that stuff about like resurrection and death and all of those questions. And literally the rules that allow this society to like function. That's her book. Good luck. Um, That's only a slight exaggeration. This is like, that's not an exaggeration at all. That's literally not an exaggeration at all. Well, like this was stated out loud to me by Hickman at my first X summit meeting. Like you have the hardest book to write um, because of those reasons. <laughs> and and I think that like, I don't think I could, like I could fathom anyone else coming up with kind of the approach that you've come up with while also incorporating. And, and this is something we talk about off mic all the time uh these amazing character moments because having to do all that heavy lifting for resurrection for for krokoa in general um that might a lesser writer might not be able to in, also put heart into the book because there's so much stuff well, that you have to do but you managed to so do it leah's x factor it's not anyone else's it yes. is not a cover song at all and i think that it was a concept that was needed on the island and i think that there are um a lot of writers who uh, would have done it in a lot less personally inspired way and leah's solution is not you know it's 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 not uh always you know out of the box detective noir it's not always uh pure you know x-men it's it's romance and mystery and it, these are characters that it's one of those books where i mean hellions is also very very much a book like this where you can love it even if you've never heard mm. of any of these characters before because leah just handles yes. them with such I mean, like you're moving chess pieces, dude. You you move them so well, and like their emotional, yeah, yeah like their emotional <laughs> arcs are so complete and total that like what you get from X Factor is really super interestingly. It's the book that I think is the most about what it's like to live on Krakoa, which is the book that so many people desperately want. I agree. Which it delivers. I, I was gonna say, I agree. Vita's Vita's analogy about coming into a house and redecorating. Um, with new mutants is actually kind of what x factor feels like for me because of you know like my, my marching orders um or, or the kind of like mission statement of this book was to like kind of be the what's the what's the word um like, no, no, not no. <laughs> Definitely not. No, um, orders. Uh, like the foundation, the the mortar, mortar, the backbone, mortar yeah. um, of uh, the entire world that we're building. So it means that I'm looking at everything that is going on and everybody's books and um, like all of that stuff because I'm I'm the death and rebirth book. Uh, I am 
responsible for the continuity of this logic and the resurrections and basically like what sets this world apart, what makes this line different and feel different is the resurrection aspect. And it is my story to, um, you know, really like flesh that out and, and make it feel real and permanent. Um, well, I think so. I think the most interesting thing about X Factor is that one, you establish really clearly that um, death is uh, death is fixable. Trauma might take a little more work, <laughs> you know. Um, yes, that's like my yeah, and, then, and that's exactly my <laughs> approach to it. Just because of well, you go ahead. I'll I'll talk. Well, specifically that the way your approach to that is just to be like, look at this unlimited resource of love and community. And I'm just going to fire hose it at this fear of death and loneliness. And it's like, (laughs) it's so potent. It's such a a brilliant. Oh, I'm glad that's visible. It's just, it's you shining your like, you know, pure crystal sailor moon heart right at the darkness. It's it's very good shit. (laughs) I didn't know that was something that you could pick up on reading X Factor, but it makes me so happy that you can see it. Clearly, clearly. You know, I I had already been like working on X Factor in the earliest days and thinking about my approach to each character and starting to really nail stuff down. And my biggest thing with Rachel is um, addressing her trauma and uh like her her past as a hound is never something that I want to like rehash or like it's not a wound I want to tear open again. I want to give it weight instead and in how it affects people because I have a really traumatized cast in general. They've all experienced lots and lots of trauma. But I think that being the death and rebirth book and being able to address tragedy with levity and heart is something that kind of makes it feel cohesive. So for Rachel, my number one thing was like, I have to figure out a way to, you know, kind of address her her trauma but not in like a PSA after school special kind of cringy way like I don't know and I've been thinking about it for weeks and then one day Teeny just fucking comes to me and she's like what if Rachel has a puppy (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like oh my god yes absolutely unlocked achievement because this thing needs a powerful psychic (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i've established a very problem i need help wrangling may i borrow your character <laughs> one of one of the things that you mentioned about x factor about it being a team full of complexly traumatized characters is something that really comes through in the book and the frankness of it in the book or the the initial tentativeness and then the frankness of it in the book is something that i really like and that i that really resonates I feel like it, it, it feels like the comic book equivalent of that awkward conversation where everyone kind of speaks in euphemisms and then realizes they're all on the same psychiatric medication. <laughs> wow. Have you met I don't us? know if anyone else has had this experience, but. Um... <laughs> I'm so relieved to hear that it comes across. That is like, you know, there's some stuff that I, I have in my head. I kind of like plant it like a flag over each issue as I'm writing the scripts, but I never really know if those kinds of things actually, you know, are communicated either textually or subtextually to readers until I'm hearing about it 
long after the fact. Um, so it makes me feel so much relief that it actually does work that way. It really lands. And I, I think part of why it lands is that it's an X factor that for me in some ways, and it, it, this is this is this is a parallel that's not obvious, and I have trouble articulating why I find it there, but it reminds me a lot of absolute OG X factor. Mm. Partly because, I mean, that is a bunch of really fucked up, traumatized people living in the same house. Yeah. Um, but it kind of feels, the it, it feels like the, the, the alternate universe where they have kind of a healthy matrix for understanding and interacting with that trauma. Yes, exactly. That yes. is exactly like my, my mission statement with this book, especially because, you know, we are dealing with such dark subject matter x factor is the like murder and missing persons book first and foremost um but i i always want it to be a, a supportive space um because this is now a deathless culture where we are bringing people back and i'm working with the five too um and one of their like biggest concerns is making sure that the transition back from death is not jarring that like it feels healing and welcoming, but, um, having characters with different kinds of traumatized, um, traumatizing experiences in their histories and like such different personalities that each of them is going to be dealing with things in a different way. And I also have like two characters with, you know, textual mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's something that I can see the intersections of a lot in, in their dynamic as like a found family and a team working together. And this is something that you bring to the table in general. And I think that you just incorporating it so much, not just an X factor, but in the, in, in the way that you kind of talk about the X-Men has affected just the room, right? Like I see other people in the room becoming much more aware of those things as they go along. And it's really cool to watch. I'm, I'm one of those people. I think that like, you know, we have a billion conversations because we talk to each other every day, but also just seeing the way that you're able to incorporate these kinds of things and be so mindful um, and additive in, in X Factor makes me want to do that kind of thing in New Mutants and also makes me aware of the fact that like there, you know, don't, there's no need to fall into kind of, I don't want to say traps, but like into, into well-worn paths about how, you know, to handle characters. I think that, you know, what you bring to everyone in the room is is this f fresh and holistic and, and, and healing outlook. Well, and I think I really also something that I always thought used to be my biggest character flaw until I became friends with you and Teeny. No, yeah. It's, it's good stuff. <laughs> I thought this was my fatal weakness <laughs> until... You it's guys good. <laughs> taught me to look at it a different way, and now it makes me feel strong. I think there's a reason that you're the right person yeah. to write this book about, like, you know, finding the lost Absolutely. mutants of this um, culture that's now able to be something new, like, because for so many reasons, like, you know, not not in small part because the you know the era that connects with you so much is an era of a lot of mutants who have been 
either, you know, lost or hurt or depowered. A lot of dead kids. Or, yeah, a lot of dead kids, right? And because yeah. you are so, you are so Emma Frost that, like, you writing this book about, like, um, recovering our lost and, like, community and healing, like, that is something that is just it so... Is a genuine catharsis for me. It is something, yeah. yeah, it is something that comes so naturally to you as a fan of X-Books. And so having you in the room writing one that is about soothing a thing that is a real cultural pain, a thing that is a unique challenge for Krakoa, and also something really specific to X-Men fans, which is the idea that, like, maybe your favorite has been forgotten, you know? And also that there's, there's, you know, there's no shame in having been through trauma, right? Like that, to me, when I read, you know, X-Factor, that that speaks to me. Um, I was rereading the post Ten of Swords issue, so I won't spoil it, Jay. Um, but, you know, there's that moment with iBoy and Rockslide or Wrongslide. And I was like, like anyone else, like writing that book could have been like, oh, this is such a tragedy. This character is so tragic, blah, blah, blah. And like had all the characters handle it in that way. And you're just like, oh, you know, you had iBoy. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, that's you. who iBoy is. Hello. Like that's his character. He's somebody who can that's, see everything you're feeling based on your, that's right. like, you know, posture. It's, it's. That's right. But who else would have, A, put him on that team <laughs> and B, been like, we need this yeah, moment. Put him in that because, role to have the choice to be brave. even though we're sad, right, even though we're sad, also there is a joy here. And there's a, you know, there's a very important person at the center of what has happened. And that person needs yeah. to be celebrated. And that's, yeah, that's it's a very Leah thing. thing to always, <laughs> always remember the people in the story. It's a very big strength. So take that. Miss, I'm going to talk good about you guys. Yeah. How dare you compliment me? Yeah. Them fighting words. This is the most arguments I've ever seen. <laughs> we do we this, do this all constantly. the time because this is part of our like strength as, as the trash queer squad. Um, we, we, each of us, hates ourselves pretty thoroughly (laughs) as individuals. We love each other enough that it offsets our own self-hatred. Like Teeny and and Vita love me in a way I have never been able to love myself. And it's also, you know, the moment that Vita says something self-deprecating, Teeny and I are like this Kool-Aid man of validation <laughs> and love who just bust down the door to be like, listen, you need to shut the fuck up. And and we Stop do this off. every day and we do this um, in the summit meetings. <laughs> listen, we live what we write. We live right? this way. This yeah. is, uh, we live that X-Men life. So I kind of wish we could go on forever here because this is amazing and you are all amazing, but I guess there are probably episode limits for podcasts time-wise. <laughs> I, I don't know if there actually are. I mean, there's there's probably like a limit to how much we want to force Matt to edit if we want him to keep producing the show. Sorry, there is Matt. that. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Jimmy Howard again. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry we talk so much. 
<laughs> no, it's, it's great. This is this has been wonderful. But before we break, uh, we did have one listener question. We had a lot of them, but we had one we especially wanted to get to. So I'm just going to read it out. Everybody jump in. I want to actually throw in first. This is actually this is not one of the questions that people spe- sent specifically for this episode, but it's such a great question. And it's a question that we really specifically wanted to get y'all's take on as well. OK, so an anonymous listener asked regarding our episode 317. Can we talk about the almost Tom of Finland-like quality of Joe Mad's guys during this period? I haven't read the Gambit brooding on the roof issue since the late 90s, but hoo if those thighs and those shorts aren't etched into my adolescent memory. I know Joe Mad isn't either of your favorite artists, but I think his contribution to eye candy, particularly Gambit, Bishop, and Sam, is underrated. What are your artist plus character perfect eye candy combinations? Ooh. I mean, for me, it's really... It's, you can't ask oh. the feral bisexuals that we... We have Oof. too many, too many options here. I have a clear go to, and that is, that is the himboness of Chris Claremont's Brian Braddock with Alan Davis's ability to draw that butt in those white pants. Um, that's that like the most ideal thing to me is like a, a, a Claremont Brian Braddock drawn by Alan Davis with that that beautiful eye candy. God save the queen, bootay! Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to go straight to Alan Davis, too, but uh, Nightcrawler. Oh, yeah. I was going to go straight to Al- Alan Davis, too, but Rachel. Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> I know it's a stereotype. I had the biggest crush on Alan Davis as Kitty when I was a kid, so... For Rachel, I would actually say Paul Smith, because Paul Smith draws a much butcher Rachel. Oh, you know wow. what? These like, are all he was the one who always drew her in, like, oversized suit jackets and stuff. Yeah. I, I like, imprinted on Alan Davis's soft butch Rachel, basically. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Uh, I'm going to break all of these, like, break Combo away. Breaker. Uh, just, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm going to say, um, oof. I think maybe Pepe oh is my God. Pepe's oh, magic, yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, my God. Real good. Yes, but I'm grown. <laughs> also, Monet is mean, and I don't know why I'm into that, but I'm into her specifically being just so mean over her shoulder. So I'm going to go with that. Um, although I will say um, uh, anyone, anyone that was in Ten of Swords drawn by I any of the people. Say, like, I bring up magic. Everyone is beautiful. There's this one panel where um, he drew magic uh, laying down, and her stomach, her, t- her little tummy was just so like soft and realistic looking that Teeny and I have been obsessed with it for months. Yeah. And every yes. time we see it again, we we show it to each other. Like, look. I'm pretty sure. I so I wrote that page, and I'm pretty sure that when Pepe sent the pencils, I was like, "Look, <laughs> like, no, you already showed it. Like this one panel. <laughs> we we did that one panel. We've been passing back and forth this whole time." <laughs> <laughs> like just to remind you of this again. Look at this little belly button. Right. I'm like her tummy looks like a powdered donut. Yes or no? <laughs> Anytime he draws one of the women screaming in rage, I'm. I just, I have to say this really isn't a specific writer artist duo. It's just some good work being done in the modern era uh, that I want to shout out. Is I'm not someone who historically is into Scott Summers at all. But this, like, gentle, handsome dad, <laughs> Scott, 
I like him. I like him a lot. And and Pepe and and Lionel and and and, and sorry, Lineal and um uh Phil Noto, everyone that's been drawing him has just been Oh my gosh. Imbuing him yeah. with uh Yeah. <laughs> this has been a weird, weirdly like positive cyclops year i think this might be the first year that we have multiple <laughs> contenders for the cyclops has a good day award yeah yeah he is like a hickman boy like hickman <laughs> oh. yeah hickman hickman loves him some scott summers sees himself in in scott more than any other x character like in in the tragedy of him if we're talking about Summers having good days and Summers being portrayed attractively, I feel like I have to throw in a, uh, a nod to Russell Dodderman's Corsair from the Cyclops. Sure. Oh my God. Years ago. Yes. 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 yes, yes, yes. And uh, Steven Segovia's I mean, Havoc oh and Carmen Carnero's Havoc. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I, I historically really, I, I historically hate Alex Summers. I'm so sorry. Same. I, I've never liked Aww. Havoc before but this point. Hellions one through four. I put down Hellions four and I was like, God damn, moments. I care about Havoc. Like, <laughs> like Zeb Wells, the madman did it. <laughs> Every time I hear about something happening with an upcoming character that I historically didn't like before Dawn of X or Hawks Pox or Rain of X, I'm just like, ah, oh, now I gotta love another one because oh. I know that's gonna be the end result. On the subject of Dodderman, his Storm Emma Jean combinations are phenomenal. Oh, damn, yeah. oh my yeah. god, yeah, yeah. Yes. and I ship yeah. Emma and Storm now. We have this whole like discussion about it based yes. off of the the art we saw it makes sense listen it makes sense we won't get into it because you gotta go but that's another podcast no i'm i'm right there with you it totally just, makes sense only person it doesn't you know what? i'm it not gonna sense. say that because i'm gonna get roasted alive it just makes sense it just it just makes sense who else would withstand aurora storms other than this beautiful diamond creature. You can't hurricane her away. You're gonna have a oh. fight, and she's gonna be mm. right there with diamond you. Diamond storm? Is that there? Is that? It doesn't anyway, matter. Anyway, anyway, sorry. Oh man, with all of that, question. thank you again all so much for being here. Thank you again for the phenomenal work you're doing in one of the best X eras, maybe ever. It, it's it's phenomenal right now. I'm so excited for everything you all have coming up, and Vita for your Children of the Atom series starting pretty soon as well. Thank, Thank you for having us. Yes. yes. Absolutely. This was a joy. Seriously, anytime. I mean, I can't guarantee that we'll be recording if you randomly text her like right now, but <laughs> I'll try to make it happen. Uh, one time I told Chip <laughs> I would be on uh, his podcast when he stole it from Ryan Stegman. And I forgot that I told him I would do it. <laughs> and he called to record with me as I was getting off of an airplane. So uh, <laughs> I just rolled with it. And just was like, I'm a very busy lady. What can I help you with today? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I might do that. There's precedent. Okay. <laughs> so we've talked about the books you're currently doing. Uh, where can people find you each online? And is there anything else that you've been working on that you want to talk about? You can find me most places under hand axe and uh on twitter i'm my monster is chic but i also just want to shout out um the trash queer squad hashtag we've started using the three of us um (laughs) on twitter because if you want to find like you know 
posts from the three of us in particular and our interactions and friendship. That's what you can look yeah. for. It People seem to be interested in things that the three of us do together and the three of us do things together a lot. So that's a good way to constantly yeah. all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, me, I'm Teeny Howard. You can follow me on, I'm on Twitter or Instagram at Teeny Howard, T-I-N-I Howard, like the duck. Um, I'd also like to point out in the writer-artist combo that Deb Wells and Steven Segovia gave me a big crush on Grey Crow. Just wanted to talk about that Grey as well. Crow. Oh my God. Mm, uh, yes, 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 yes. I'm working on yes. some things I would love to talk to you about, uh, but the ones you don't know about, I can't talk to you about yet, so I won't. Happy holidays. I'm just gonna have to kick Always Miles mysterious. off the call because I I I have a Marvel MD. <laughs> Damn it! What? <laughs> Sorry, Miles. Um, you can find me Vita Ayala on Twitter. Too much at definitely Vita. Um, there's nothing that I'm working on that has been announced that I can really talk about uh, that that hasn't been announced rather. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I released. Uh, I co co wrote. Uh, a creator-owned comic this year, Quarter Killer, that I am really proud of. It's super black, super good, and super mm-hmm. queer, um, and it's on Comicsology and it's always on sale. So please uh, go check that out. Um, you know, it's a good time. Thank you all again so much for coming by our entirely non-existent studio. It's always great to see you, and really can't wait till we can actually do that in person again. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. The 6th Annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence in Excellence. This was hard this year. It was hard for, like, the good reasons, though. There were so many really, really good X-Books. There really, really were. As we often do, we're going to start with the modern Corbos, awards given to comics that are X-Men related, or sometimes not, that came out in 2020, the year we are now finishing. But Jay, I gotta say, I don't know that you should really be qualified to give out awards at this point. I mean, you wrote an X-Book. Yeah, but it doesn't qualify for most of the categories. Like, what if, what if I just recuse myself from, like, from the, the one-shot category? Because almost everything we do is ongoings. Okay, okay, that seems fair, but I'm just saying, we're gonna have a critic voice, we're gonna have a Miles voice. They're both valid voices, but I feel like we're on a slightly different plane than once we were. But you made an amazing comic, so it's totally worth it. It was seriously amazing. I mean, if it helps, I I do have an official contract clause saying I'm still allowed to criticize stuff. Excellent. Well, in that case, let's dive right in. Let's begin with the 2020 Corbeau for Best Writer. That goes to Teeny Howard for Excalibur and X of Swords. And our best line artist? Goes to Rod Reyes for New Mutants. The award for best colorist this year goes to... The psychedelic and textured work of Dean White on X-Force. On to books, best ongoing solo series... Goes to Wolverine by Benjamin Percy and various artists. It starts out with vampires. I love vampires. The award for best ongoing team series, hotly debated between Jay and I for a very long time, goes to... Excalibur, with Marauders a very, very close runner-up. And this is the award for best one-shot, so I'm officially recusing myself. 
And yet, I fear you have won it because Marvel's Snapshots X-Men J, the comic you wrote about Cyclops, was mind-blowingly good and was my favorite single issue of all of 2020. I feel like you're still really more biased than usual on this one, too. I never claim to not be biased, but I'm also right. The How Is This So Good award for a premise that shouldn't have worked but did goes to, unsurprisingly, X of Swords! What the hell? It was great! And it's just... Like, the swords, man. The swords. There were so many swords. This brings us back to an old standard, the Cyclops Has a Good Day Award. I think this may be the first year that this has actually been a contested category. Jay, should you be able to judge in this? I mean, again, you wrote a Cyclops book. Yeah, but he didn't actually have any good days in it, so I can still, I can still hang out for this category. I'm good. Okay, well, in that case, let's go ahead and give that to... The entire X-Men series this year by Jonathan Hickman and various artists. Cyclops has had so many good days. A couple of bad ones, but a lot of good ones. Hooray. And we gather several good nights as well. Mm Mm-hmm. The best callback award this year goes to... X-Men number three, which I believe technically came out last year, but we're pulling it anyway because it's so tied into this year's events. And that is the referral back to, I believe, Secret War number one. He may be an insufferable bore, but he's our insufferable bore. Moving forward, the About Damn Time Award. We've got a few winners this year. We are at least two things that I think fans have been waiting on for decades at this point. This award jointly goes to Kate Pride finally kissing a girl on panel. And the connected bedrooms of Krakoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Scott, Gene, Logan, I hope you're having a great time. Let's be fair. It's Krakoa. There are gates. All the bedrooms connect. (laughs) The We Kept It Warm For You Award for Most Overdue Character Return. Wizkid and Sword! Hell yeah! Also Frenzy and Sword? Maybe not Fabian Cortez and Sword. No one was waiting for Fabian Cortez. He's pretty funny in the book, though. Lost and Found Award for Character Voice Recovery. This award goes to Rachel Gray in X-Factor by Leah Williams, who has fast become one of my favorite characters of the modern era. Speaking of favorite characters, the Madeline Pryor Award for amazing characters who deserved better goes, once again, to... Madeline Pryor in Hellions. I think she got at least a year off at some point, but... The Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series absolutely goes to Children of the Atom by Vida Ayala and Bernard Chang. This book looks wonderful, and I am so excited to finally get a chance to check it out. The Most Amazing Baby... Wait, really, Jay? Yes, really. The Most Amazing Baby Award goes to... Motherfucking Amazing Baby, of course. And finally... The best non-X Marvel comic of 2020 is Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing and various artists. Listeners, if you're not reading this book, do yourself a favor and check it out, assuming you don't mind truly disturbing body and psychological horror. That brings us to the classic Corbos. This is where we look back at the titles that we covered on the podcast over the entirety of 2020, including this year, all of Age of Apocalypse. Want to get us started, Miles? Absolutely. Let's start with the Buried Treasure Award for popularly overlooked brilliance. 
it's going to go to the series actually that we covered today. Um, technically, we recorded this in 2020, so we're going to say it counts. It's the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. As always, we're following that straight up with the ABD Award for why Havoc still hasn't finished his dissertation. This year, he was too busy losing control of his powers, getting kidnapped, deliberately walking into a trap without leaving a note, and getting kidnapped again. The Epoch Award for Positive Definition of an X-Era goes to Fabian Nicesa, whose last run we wrapped up this year, um, and who returned us to the X-Men and the X-Line that we loved with a new voice and a new spin, and we're going to miss like hell as we go forward. The Florida Department of Education Award for Most Overblown Sexual Cautionary Tale goes to Gambit and Rogue's kiss at the end of the world that turned out to not actually be the end of the world and thus led to Gambit's coma, Rogue's ill-advised, scantily clad and Iceman chaperoned road trip, and a big old fight in an exceptionally dramatic theater, plus even wackier stuff we'll get to next year where that kiss may win this award once again. The Fearful Serendipity Award for Accidentally On The Nose Podcast Coverage Timing Hitting the Age of Apocalypse in 2020 precisely at the start of popular awareness of the COVID pandemic was a little ridiculous. That was a thing. The Come On, It's Only Genocide Award for ill-fated attempts to redeem an ultimately irredeemable character goes to Age of Apocalypse's Cyclops, who's incredibly heroic all the time, except for, you know, that whole genocide thing. It's problematic. The Glamest of the Glam Award for Best Age of Apocalypse Visual Redesign goes to... Sunfire. The We've Already Got One of Those Award for character, team, or series we'd much rather have seen transported to the 616 than Nate Gray goes to some friends of Nate Gray, the Age of Apocalypse version of Forge and his players. The Adamantium Parking Ticket Award goes to... Age of Apocalypse's Weapon X and Jean Grey crashing their stolen Sentinel into Big Ben. Cause why not? Seriously, there was just a Sentinel butt sticking out of that giant clock building for the rest of the Age of Apocalypse. It was great. Making the Bad Look Good Award for Best Dystopian Hellscape Visuals. Goes to Chris Bicello for Age of Apocalypse's Generation Next miniseries. Wow. The Best Book in the Worst Timeline Award goes to... Factor X of the Age of Apocalypse. The Sure Why Not Award for Shaky But Delightful Premise goes to... The Uncreated as seen in Excalibur and the Starjammers. They are killers of God and their only weak point is PowerPoint. Nice. The Layla Miller Award for Most Improved Character. Goes to Adam X, the Extreme, for X-Men Volume 2, Number 39. You know, the one where he gently set Grandpa Summer's blood on fire to keep him warm in a blizzard. Aw. Genuinely great issue. The Exquisite Corpse Award, for character furthest from their initial concept. It's awarded to Random, originally a parody of DC's Lobo, now a sad, lonely teenager. The Douglock Memorial Award for Best Ex-Friendship goes hands down this year to Iceman and Rogue. The Jay's Feelings Award goes to X-Factor 115, obviously. I'm surprised you told us about that instead of just running off to Alaska. Who says I didn't? 
The golden final straw for the moment that finally shattered our tenuous grasp on sanity goes to the fucking leprechauns, or elves, or whatever they are, from Generation X number 8 and 9. And specifically to Eamon O'Donnell, who may or may not be one of them. We may never know. The Future Past Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series Coverage goes to... The Controversial Road Trip X-Force Era. I'm really curious about that one. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, likewise. Uh, that brings us to a final award. This is the one that bridges the modern and classic corpos, and that goes to the best listeners of any podcast ever. And those are you. All of you. Every single one of you listening to this or any of our episodes. You're wonderful, and we love you. We've known for a long time that we had a super, super kick-ass community around this podcast, that you were phenomenal people. Watching the way... Y'all have stepped up for each other this last year and stayed engaged and been there, seeing the stuff you've written to us, seeing the stuff you've written in public. Like, there, there is no, no year where that has been more evident. We've actually got a special shout out um, this year. That is, that is to Icon UK, um, to whom we are awarding the Why We Read the Comments Award. We get a lot of kick-ass comments, kick-ass commenters, but um, Icon UK has been a mainstay since pretty near the start, and this year hit over 1,000 comments total, not just this year. Damn. Very freaking nice, and thank you so much, Icon. And thanks to everybody. Thanks to all of our listeners who have listened, who have gotten in touch with us, who have talked to us at conventions back when they were a thing. Thank you to our patrons. You are the folks who keep us on the air, who keep us able to keep doing this um, and to keep us able to keep doing this free of outside advertising or really any kind of network. Like we're able to stay independent. We're able to do the things we want to do. We're able to respond to the things you want to respond to and stay answerable to you and you alone because of those folks. And we are so glad and so grateful for that. We also want to make sure we thank a few specific people at the end of this very challenging year. Most recently, Vita, Tini, and Leah, thank you for coming on the show and having a great conversation with us. And thank you for making amazing X-Books. You're all amazing. Thank you today, every day, and always to our amazing, amazing producer, Matt Hunter, who at this point has produced more of our show than anybody else and who... We are so lucky and so glad and so excited to be able to go into this new year continuing to work with. For real. Matt, you were great. Thank you, Extra, for working on this giant goddamn episode right here. Thank you also to, um, I, I feel like this particular episode, I should add a thanks to someone who is almost definitely not listening to the show. Um, that is Dr. David J. Bradshaw, who is pretty much responsible for everything I know about the Victorian era and its literature. We also want to thank David Wynn, who draws incredible episode art for every single episode we do. If you haven't checked it out on our website, you absolutely should. David's a phenomenal artist, and his pieces are alternately moving and hilarious, and we're so happy that they're part of what J. Miles Explained the X-Men has become. Finally, within our personal lives, we owe massive, massive, massive thanks and gratitude to our partners, T. Fugner and Anna Sheffy. Seriously, we put so much time into this show, and a lot of why we can do so is the incredible support from Anna and from T. Thank you both. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, an exile from Forest Hills, New York. 
and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be taking our annual post-winter special break. And the week after that, Excalibur gets some Peters and a wolf. (laughs) 